1: morning. Welcome along to Tip Today. 1800 938 007. Our free phone number it won't cost you to make a call. And Doc is looking after the programme today. Coming up on this morning's show are some healthcare professionals lacking empathy when delivering bad news. Nina is celebrating its hearty cup victory this morning. We'll be chatting about that. The increasing pressure on the rental market and our Irish people being pushed out. We'll go to Mehal in Thurles to speak to the incredible people there ahead of Sarah's cycle this month. Our agony aunt Phil is with us. Uh, Ali will um, look at life after death experiences on this week's Conspiracy Slot and our psychotherapist Susan will be in studio with us as well. So all of that and much much more on the way of course you can text and WhatsApp Oh eight three three double one double three double one. you can email tiptoday at tipfm.com at any time at all let's have a look at the front pages today Uh, right across the front uh, pages needless to say news that uh, king charles has revealed he has uh, cancer and uh, one of the uh, stories being that uh, prince harry is flying in to be with his father after not being uh, in contact all that much for the last uh, nine months or so. Uh, The main story on the Irish Indo, uh, more than two out of three GPs in rural Ireland are not uh, taking on new patients and some have waiting times of up to two weeks for an appointment. Now, that's no surprise to us here on this programme because we've been hearing about it um, all of the time over the last few years. Uh, The Irish Daily Mail, and uh, again, uh, the Prince Charles story there, and... uh, the main story on the front page is a quarter of six-year-olds own their own smartphones. And a new survey has found this to be the case, despite major concerns over cyberbullying and uh, online grooming and access to pornography and the like. I wonder what do you think about that quarter of six-year-olds with their own smartphone. Let's go to the Irish Times and... Uh, uh, b- wonderful picture uh, dominating the front of the Irish Times, the fir- First Minister uh, Michelle O'Neill and Deputy First Minister Emma Little-Pengelly uh, greeting the Taoiseach Leo Radcar uh, with a little kiss as he arrives at Stormont Castle yesterday following uh, the restoration of power sharing in the north. Also on the front of the Times, plans are being made for an urgent catch-up vaccination programme for young adults against measles. After the HSE warned, the probability of an outbreak in Ireland was very high. And also uh, great news for the Cashel Palace, because they've received a Michelin star for the Bishop's uh, Buttery at the wonderful Cashel Palace and uh, many, many congratulations indeed to them and well deserved too. The Irish Examiner uh, finally and uh, the main story there um, a beautiful soul inside and out and one of a kind uh, that is how to of the three young friends killed in horror crash in Carlo were remembered at their funerals yesterday. So that's a look at what's making headlines today. If you want to make a comment on any of that, oh eight three three double one double three double one. Now many people are lucky with their experiences in the health services and uh, being in the care of very compassionate and uh, very kind nurses and doctors but others are not so lucky and after listening to our interview with Marguerite last week who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, one of our listeners Desi was in touch and joins me now. Desi good morning to you Yeah hello friends. Good good to talk to you today um, Will you tell me about your own experience Desi because you were diagnosed with cancer how was that told to you?
2: I, I'll tell you, even before I start now, friend, the first thing I'm going to say is I have absolutely total respect for all doctors and and, and the doctors. And I've been wishing awful lot of doctors over the years and absolutely great respect. Can you hear me, friend? Yes,
1: I can hear you perfectly, does Yes.
2: Yeah. But in saying that, no, It's uh, I'm going to make this Fairly fast. I I had problem with the system EI mm-hmm. and then I was just sent to a hospital. And next, what you call it, a uh, and I said that shouldn't come back. And next, uh, two months later, I went and I the eye again, and. Lanced it and that mm-hmm. should come back. And, and the third time it went down, the phone rang inside in the place where I was uh, getting the, the cis lens. Yes. And this doctor arrived in and he says, What are you doing with this chap's eye? And they said, We're lancing it. And next, uh, the doctor said, No, I don't want that lens. I want a biopsy of that thing in the corner of his eye. And I want to results for that. So that was fine. They done biopsy that day. Mm-hmm. And I went down three weeks later. And I went down. A, a, a friend of mine, she, she brought me down yes. to, to the hospital. And next, um, what's I was in the hospital. And now there were a big crowd there. Mm-hmm. A big crowd in the waiting room, like, you know, and I was just waiting, I said, God will be here all day, like, you know, mm-hmm. before be called in, like, you know, and the doctor comes out and he says he called me name and he says, uh, we got the results, of that biopsy, that's cancerous, you have got to reception, she start out to think you have to go to Dublin.
1: Uh, hold on now, Dizzy. was this in the waiting room?
2: In the waiting room, yeah. Well, with
1: other people around.
2: Yeah, the place was full. My God! You know.
1: So this was the it, first it, you heard of of cancer. This was the first.
2: Yes, yeah, and it was, and and you know, it, it broke me heart, like you know, because look at that time or at this time or at any time when you hear the word cancer, that's it. You know, oh, and
1: oh, were you on course. your own? Were you on your own
2: in the? No, wedding? I was not. no there was a, a friend of mine. She she drove me down, okay. and she was as shocked as I was.
1: And and how did you react to that, Desi, when
2: you were? I told? didn't actually. I didn't react at all because I'll tell you this much. On our way back, we, I I'm not going to say where we stopped, mm. but um. She said, we're going to have a petite, like, you know, and yeah. I went, I don't want a petite, I'll have a brandy, I said, like, mm. you
3: know.
2: Yeah. Which I wasn't even drinking at the time. And what's called it, uh, when we did arrive home, uh, uh, she was driving, she got out of the car, and she, she went in, she said, Lord, I'm missing uh uh He got those all Now, my mother was, went... She wasn't well and i it's not to say she wasn't well, but she, she started crying,
1: yes, of course she did,
4: yeah,
2: you know, and I thought it was it's just the the approach you, you used the word there last week empathy, like you know, yeah, but yeah. I think a doctor should be able to call you into the in into his own place and say to you. You know what's wrong and what's expected, and that's like you know I have been up and up and down, then the whole time like you know, but at least I knew what was wrong and like. But you know, so I'm I'm grand.
1: And so when they were lancing, um, the 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 growth in your eye, were they doing the incorrect thing then, Desi? Should, uh, should they not that- have been doing that?
2: They were doing the incorrect thing because they took it for grant, granted that was um, a cyst. And it turned out it was um, cancer. My God. My God. And only for that phone call. And that doctor gone in yeah. and answering the phone and looked over. Uh, as a, a person said to me up, and, up in St. Luke's in, in Rickard, I said, Listen, what's the outcome of this? He said, Well, now he was a trainee doctor yeah. and he said, I uh, have a feeling that you won't lose your hair. And do you know what I said to him? I said, What good is a person with full head of hair inside in coffin?
1: My God. And what sort of treatment were you put on then, Desi? What?
2: I, I had radium and I, had, I I didn't have chemo.
1: Right. And are but are yeah. you finished all of that now?
2: I am, yeah.
1: Right. And and what is the situation now? What have they told you? I mean, are you cancer free, Desi?
2: Yes. I am, yeah, but there's a friend of mine who is cancer free and she ended up dying of cancer. You know? And and the chap beside me in the bed up and said, "Look, he, uh, I, I'll never forget him because he have a relation uh, here in town, and uh, he he had died coke, a bottle of Diet coke, and he gave it over to me, and he says." Listen, you have that, I won't need it. And, and the next morning I woke up and there the curtains were pulled around like, you know, he died oh my during God. the night, like, oh you my know. God. Oh, my God. Um, and li- Listen, friend, before I go.
1: Yes, yes, Desi, of course.
2: Can I, you know, just to lighten the subject a small bit, mm. uh, I, I went in for a pint last Last day mm. into a pub near enough to where I, in, in the old bridge, in other words, mm. and what you call it, um, and I went out, I, I had a point, I was watching the t- tipped over the match, mm. and I went out. Can you hear me? I can hear
1: you fine, Desi, yes.
2: Yeah, I went out for a fag. Mm hmm. And I was there watching the match and the door opened, this other person came comes in and he he went out for a fag as well, like, you know. Mm. And next uh, he just said to me, he said, uh you're on your own he said. Mm. And I said, I am, I'm having a fag. and I'm watching the match. And I, from Camel he said, and I said, I am. And he said, I work in Cammel. I work in the Creamery. Mm. I said, did you ever know Johnny Luby? <laughs> he said, I am Johnny Luby.
1: <laughs> 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 oh, that's very good. That's very good. I you? thought
2: that was
1: great. Right, so he was smoking and drinking there as well uh, over the weekend <laughs> in the Old Bridge. You can't beat it. Desi, I'm delighted thank you're, you're right. well, and thank you for t- And you should not yeah. have had to put up with being told that in that fashion. It's an absolute disgrace.
2: I, I Yes. Well, I'm over that now. Yeah,
1: I know, I know. But thank you for telling us your story because it highlights... Um, what we hear it quite often here that people are told inappropriately that they, they the the bad news. Good to talk to you, Desi. and We wish you well for the future and thank you very much indeed. All right, we'll take a break. It's uh, eighteen. What is it? Eighteen minutes past nine. I'm back in just.
5: Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry in association with Slatteries of
0: Pecan Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer, Slatteries Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over fifty years in the Premier County. Slatteries Garage. I.
1: Now, a big response uh, to uh, Desi Uh, Wunderser saying, uh, just listening to that poor man explaining how he got his diagnosis of cancer, it's disgraceful, it's a total breach of confidentiality, and uh, the doctor that did that needs to learn how to and where to discuss patients' medical uh, details. Can you imagine? I mean, a packed waiting room, and the doctor comes out as if he was talking about... I don't know the common cold or something, and he delivers um, life changing uh, news to to the man. I mean, it's just unforgivable. Uh, many years ago, I saw a similar situation with with my own family, in, where where devastating news was given in in the corridor. Of, of a hospital and again it was extremely unfortunate and my friend uh, Joe Noble was on and she says the poor man I absolutely feel for him as you know Fran I was told some news while on a trolley in a corridor in a hospital uh, while there was nobody with me and in my take, uh, in my case thank God it was misdiagnosis but those words cancer Absolutely horrific, says Joe on 83 a double one. Now, there was much celebration in Tipperary Town last week with the opening of the new HQ for Neffin Renewables. And speaking at the opening, the Enterprise Minister, Simon Coveney, said that Tipperary can be the centre of a new biogas industry in Ireland. But John is not so sure, and he joins me now. Good morning to you, John. Morning, Fran. How are you? I'm uh, Very well indeed, and good to talk to you today. Would you tell me about your experience in Kildare, John?
6: First of all, many thanks for allowing me onto to your, your programme, Very welcome, Fran. John. Very welcome. <laughs> yeah, I was driving across Kildare. Now, I'm not too sure. I was on SatNAV And I'm not too sure exactly where I was, because you just follow the Sat Nav and keep going. But suddenly I got this terrible smell, and it was weird, it was, it was kind of a gaseous smell, but it was obnoxious, yeah. absolutely obnoxious. And I, I drove on for about a quarter of a mile, and the next thing, I, I passed this big development, and I thought it was actually, and I'm pretty sure it was an anaerobic digester. And I said, that wouldn't be nice to have near me, mm. to live near. It was I couldn't explain it now, it made slurry, it made slurry kind of smell like perfume, it was wow. that bad. Wow. It was really, really bad. So I was very interested then when I when I was I was working away there in my tractor last Friday, when um, this interview came on with uh, Minister Coveney, and he was talking about this new development I said the headquarters which was going to be open in the that little um, technology park in, mm. in Tipperary, mm. and it sounded great, new jobs, and my God, does Tipperary need need jobs, and it was a new income for for farmers, and that sounds great, and. Um, all the farmers have to do is just supply their slurry to the anaerobic digester. And then they can uh, buy the um, the digestate, which would be the, the end material. They can buy yes. that back as a fertilizer, mm-hmm. which is very, very good, you know. And that the, the gas then will be refined down to biomethane and injected back into the gas, replacing the gas, <coughs> natural gas in the pipeline system. So... Uh, i suppose what then having had the experience of the, of the of the smell of this thing i said um that that kind of caught my imagination or my interest but what really got my interest was a new income source for farmers no fan i am fed up to the teeth with people coming up and telling us about new income sources for farmers, they never materialise. In fact, uh, am sorry, John, I...
1: for non-farmers out there, what would that be? Would it be bringing the product to the anaerobic uh, digestion plant? Is that it? They'd be paid for that. Is that where the income would be? Apparently, apparently,
6: we'll be paid for the slurry that we supply to the anaerobic digester.
1: Right.
4: Okay.
6: Not as simple as that, though. I tried to find out there online what we actually get for it, and I got onto a farming forum. I think it must have been far, an online forum. I think it must have been up in the north. Mm. And uh, somebody, somebody was asking that question, what were they going to get for it? And somebody says, look, it won't cover the cost of dropping it off to the anaerobic digester. He said, what well, you'll get for that? And he said, and then another fellow came on and he said, oh, that's great because um, they, they collect it when they drop off the digester. To me, they, they collect the... Um, the, the slurry and bring it mm. back to the plant. And and that was a zero sum. Actually it was covering that what they were all they were they were they were moving the slurry onto do onto the uh, anaerobic digester yeah. and then they were getting that and that was it. There was no other income from it. Well and you know, again forgive
1: they, my ignorance on this. So they would supply the slurry to To the anaerobic di- uh, digestion plant. Uh, the results yeah. then would be fertilizer, as you say, for the land. But I presume they'd have to pay for the fertilizer.
6: Apparently, one, when one is set off against the other, that's it, it's a zero sum.
1: Oh, okay.
6: So, they get back the fertilizer, they would have lost... By exporting the slurry. So they end up with the same amount of fertilizer, even though the new fertilizer is uh, more environmentally friendly. But the new, uh, whereas it won't be running off into waterways and things like that. Yes, yes. But and we're told the, it's
1: going to be a major role in helping us to meet the climate ambitions, I suppose, by reducing the emissions.
6: Well, well that, 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 that aspect is the methane or the biogas. The biomethane, the bio-gas. yes.
1: Biomethane, yeah. Well the
6: biogas which is then converted into bi by bi- cleaned up and converted into biomethane. That is a win win. But from what I can see from this forum, there was no win win for farmers and the digestate that comes right. back, that can be washed into rivers as well. Right, but I guess you know,
1: it wouldn't be as harmful as the slurry, would it?
6: It would be apparently just as harmful if it got washed into the rivers. Is, it's, it's, uh, it's got this nutrient value, same nutrient value as, as that. So I said I'd look on a little bit farther. Yes. So I I went and I looked and I found out that, uh, about this Chagas anaerobic digester that they have. in. They're building a new plant in Grange. I actually saw it during its development stage when I was up there at a the conference
7: mm. or
6: as an open day. So the bottom line there is when you get to, the bottom, get to the bottom line, payback is dependent on a suitable refit, which is a, a subsidy for the substrate, sub substrate, substrate being digested. So again, there is no profit in it. It needs um, it needs subsidies to operate. Now people make big noise about how how many digesters are in the north and in Denmark, both. Systems are heavily subsidised. Yeah. So the out, so,
1: so what are you saying to me? The bottom line on this is then. I mean, you know, I mean, there there was all sorts of fancy talk about how effective this was going to be last week and how this was a step forward and stuff. What what are you saying to me then, John?
6: Well, if you could take a case study of the the anaerobic digester which has been developed in in Grange, up in County Meath. They they're they're doing it on the basis that there will be the slurry from a thousand cattle will be sold to the people with have the anaerobic digester or well will be used in their anaerobic digester. But it's not just slurry. You need grass to go with it. You know, you can't just put in slurry and get gas from slurry. You need feedstock and the feedstock is is made up of 50, around fifty percent, maybe more, grass silage, and up to fifty percent of the slurry.
1: Right.
6: So, but that is the big income source, of course, for farmers. They can spe- they can um, they can sell their grass silage to these people. The only problem is that if you take a case where you have a thousand cattle being fed, and they probably need about five hundred acres. Now, people will tell you up or back, but say say five hundred acres of grass silage mm. to feed them. So you have your thousand cattle. And you send you send off the slurry to the place, but you also have to send off, I think about 170 acres of grass silage, and you get paid for that, which is great. But that's all you get paid for, really, because the other thing is kind of cost neutral. So right. the next year, you the next year you put in your thousand cattle, but you don't have a thousand acres, or you don't have your 500 acres of, of grass silage. You're now down to 335 acres of grass silage. So you, what do you do then? Do you keep less cattle or do you buy back in silage? Which means that you've sold silage, but you have to buy it back in again. The bottom line, fan, is that this is using our biomass in the form of grass silage, which is supposed to produce, which would be fed to cattle, which would be to produce food. Mm-hmm. In other words, our, our, our crops which are used to, to produce food, to feed people, are now going to be used to produce energy. So what's going to produce the food? Are we going to buy in more fertiliser and produce more silage that way? But then that's counterproductive because that's polluting the atmosphere right, by and, putting and on more... John,
1: stuff. why isn't there more discussion? around this because this is just being held up there as being an ideal and, and then you mentioned Denmark so Doc did some digging for me and seemingly the first plant on an industrial scale that was built in uh, Elsinore in Denmark in 1990 capacity there 20,000 tonnes uh, the plant eventually closed down because of the high operation costs.
6: Well, I was abroad. I did a bit of work at this. I did a course in TI. I don't know what it's called now. It was the Prairie Institute when I was there. <laughs> and we went to see an aerobic digester down in Kilkenny. it being closed down. It wasn't economic. We're out in, in Belgium. We went to see one in Belgium and it was closed down. It wasn't economic. But just why is it being done? Perhaps I could draw your attention to an address made by the IFA president to the Joint Director's Committee of the Environment and Climate Action back in July 19- 2022. And he gave us the very same talk that Simon Coveney was... It was really, You could say copy and paste. He ran... They, they seem to want to be... They seem to be worth... A lot of our farming organizations seem to be suffering from this best boy in the class syndrome. You know, if something is promoted by somebody, they'll jump on and say, yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, look at the problems we had, friend, at the moment with all these protests over in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. What are they protesting about? We have the very same things happening here in Ireland, but there has been a total silence from all our farming organisations to the problems. Last year, our single payments were cut now the single payments people might not understand, but they're to allow farmers to produce food mm. at a reasonable cost in a high cost environment and basically most of the single payments most of the in- the only income most farmers have in Ireland are the single payments. That's their income, because they, what they get for, them, for their food they produce only covers the cost of producing it. In some cases, it doesn't even cover that. What did they do last year? They reduced that. They slashed that single payment without saying a word, and nobody seemed to know about it. And then, do you know what it is then? <laughs> this is really good. The, the, what was taken off the single payment then was used as a, a base to get people to put do environmental actions like yes. plants things and things. And well, that, that's said, what yes, was
1: behind the cuts, was it not? I mean, in the first place.
6: Yeah. But then, do you know what they call these new payments, these payments for this new uh, acre scheme?
8: What?
6: The government, they called it a new income source for farmers. They had a cheek to say that. The money they had taken from poor, these poor misfortunate people Mm. Luckily, I think. But still, wasn't that whole farm.
1: wasn't the whole acres thing? Wasn't it oversubscribed in the end, John? I mean, you know, there's no choice.
6: Their yeah. back is to the wall. That's the problem. It's like it's like. I mean, it, it is so horrible for a government to do that.
1: Mm. And and can I just and, talk to you about the demonstrations because the demonstrations right across Europe, um, particularly I suppose Germany and France, I mean, were really, really, really tough demonstrations, tough protests and some unfortunate stuff going on as well. By, By comparison, what happened here in Ireland was very benign. So why are Irish farmers more accepting, I suppose, of...
6: Well, nobody really knew. I was talking to a consultant recently and he said, a guy rang him up, he said, my payments are back this year. What happened? And the consultant said, I tried to explain to you last spring what was going to happen, but you must have forgotten. And he had forgotten. So the penny hasn't really dropped. And I mean they talk about new income sources for Ireland. Our chief, the head, the new head of Chagas has said that part-time farming, he sees it as a good thing. I mean if somebody described part-time farming to me recently as farming by flashlight. You go and you do your day's work and you come home then you get out your flashlight and off you go and do your farming. The situation has not so ridiculous but the deafening silence coming from all our farming organisations on the issue why they want to do that and want to be... It's like, I call it the best boy in the class syndrome. They want mm. to be really nice to, to, the, to, to, the, um, to our government. Do, but, but wasn't, was, wasn't
1: an... the IFA behind, in fairness, the protests last week, were they not?
6: No. It, they came out in solidarity with their European counterparts. They were embarrassed into it. Embarrassed into it. It was, it was an absolute disgrace. They, they didn't come out to support Irish farmers. They came out in solidarity with their European counterparts. Just think of it. Yeah. There have been the deadly silence that has been going on from all our farming organisations, where the poor guys, well, as far as the poor guys now, they're relying on this money. Uh, They've gone out to work now, as a stage. Can I
1: And can I just take you back then to what happened in Tipperary with Neffin Energy and all of that? I mean, one of the things that Simon Coveney said, I just have it here in front of me, John. He said, not only is it a positive development in terms of climate change and energy transition, but uh, Neffin Renewable Gas by methane production will benefit rural communities across Ireland by generating jobs and creating new revenue streams for farmers. But you are saying that that is not the case, that at the end of the day, those revenue streams will be modest if there at all
6: Exactly and if there will be a revenue if you want to'm I'm, fee- I'm getting feedback now from you. if we want to get um, if we want to get revenue we can sell our grass, but if we want to stay in farming we have to buy back the equivalent amount of grass and again it's, look the biggest problem with methane and cattle is what comes out the front end
1: yeah yeah that seems
6: to be so. forgotten. yeah this is what comes out the back end and this is put into our slurry tanks we then have to agitate that slurry which will reduce methane and we know has had terribly sad consequences for people were died so does methane reduce uh, the methane uh, released at that stage It's then taken off to the to the to the anaerobic digesters uh, which never leak and which are well enclosed except for the one i came across in county to there so like come yes. on I mean and there's no I mention see, so in I'm,
1: anything that I could find this morning there's no mention of a smell from these plants at all
6: no no mention release uh, the process releases um um where have i got it here something uh, hydrogen sulfate right which is like rotten eggs like su- su- sulfur type of
1: smell I guess yeah
6: it's rotten yeah and that is and that is supposed to be the the digested then is supposed to be very benign if it smells Quite sweet it smells like perfume. Again, on a farmer's forum that I came across, I think it was over in the UK, where they'd spread this by digest- this, this, this raw material that comes out at the end or the, the end product, yeah. and they said it was absolutely stink. So, what we read and what actually happens?
1: Same, some, yeah, <laughs> Ma- Martin was to us, and he says, "Check out ear to the ground last week. They covered a digester, uh, digester in the north. Now I don't know what what that was about, or whether that was positive or negative, or whatever. You didn't see that program, did you? No, I no. didn't. Okay, see it, so no. I'm I'm not no. sure what that is. Somebody else saying use maize, not grass. More maize for an acre uh, than grass. Does that make sense to you, John?
6: Probably, but that uses a lot of fertiliser and it uses uh, It is something that would go into animal feed which would eventually produce animal food so you're taken away from the food chain you reduce the food supply
4: Alright,
1: just before I let you go look to the future for me, the future of farming let's say the next decade John, what, what do you make of it?
6: Well, first of all, young people aren't coming back. Young people aren't stupid. I met a couple of young people up at a conference in uh, to the beef conference up in um, Balnaislow there, a month or two ago. Yeah, and uh, they were doing ag science. A lovely couple, very modern for what for A Fabulous couple. They were they were very annoyed after listening to the conference because the conference obviously told us that everything was going to be great and we're going to look forward to a great future. You know the usual. You know that's the way they go. Mm. They said every weekend when they come home from college, they are faced with so much work. The father who runs the farm can't afford to employ labor. So all the jobs are left for them to do at the weekend. Now, that's reality. That's what's happening at the moment. You know, we hear about all the great, marvelous things like these our ministry. And I mean, Simon's a great guy. I mean, he's a nice guy. You know, he may have told us a few years ago, we're going to get a great export trade for beef to America, which didn't materialize. But he's a nice guy. And he's very, I think he's a sincere guy. But he has to say what he has to say. So that's what the young people are saying. And as well as that, in their class, they said very few of the guys and girls in their class are going back farming. So what is going to ha- happen farming? I don't know. There's well, going to be bigger farms,
1: I suppose, huge farms, I suppose, on industrial scales. Is that what we're looking at?
6: Well, are we looking at the American system where you get huge, huge farms and you, you have to import cheap labour? They import it from Mexico. We we'll try and yeah. import it from somewhere else. So, is is that the future? That doesn't make a sustainable yeah. rural area that the minister is talking about. Yeah, and it doesn't. And it, it it's not. Uh, and again, when they have the power. They will have the power. Those big, huge conglomerates will have huge power when it comes. Like food is the most important strategic commodity in the world. We need it more every morning we get mm. up. We need food.
1: But yeah,
6: EU pa- BU is playing is playing is playing a dangerous game at the moment. And if they talk about this. There was a hubbub there um, a few weeks ago about this new bioeconomy campus in Lachine. You probably came across that. Did sure. you hear about yes,
1: it? I did indeed. Yeah.
6: So bioeconomy is based on biomass, and like we're, we've been discussing biomass there for the last few, few minutes. And, but this is supposed to do away with all fossil fuels. But it's all going to be run. So how, is our, how, is, how are we going to grow the biomass to replace fossil fuels? How is that going to happen? Everybody said all our county councillors were delighted from what I could hear on the radio about this new facility. In And actually, apparently, one of these new biodigesters, anaerobic digesters, is going to be based in Lachine, which could be interesting.
1: Um, One of our listeners says it's not a profit-making exercise, and he's referring to the anaerobic digestion. It's designed to address climate change, uh, says one of our, our listeners. Will you stay with me for a moment, John, because I think Francis is with me on the other line. Francis, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Thanks for coming on with us. You visited uh, the um, the one in Kildare, I think, Francis, did you?
9: Um, I did, Fran, yeah. I was on a rural development um, committee, which I and we visited one in Norley and Kildare there approximately three years ago. Yes, uh, Very interesting place. It was mostly waste food from supermarkets that time. Now, they hadn't got into the farm waste, but uh, where we're um, getting into that. They're probably into it now. Yes. There's extra machines that have to put on to, to um, cope with the silage and the slurry. Right, but, but you yes didn't experience yes, no any smell, did you? Oh, I, I would, yeah. You would get a smell, but nothing obnoxious like it More than what you'd have in your own farm yeah, when you're dealing with silage or slurry or food waste. Right. You're going to have some smell like this, there's no doubt about it. Mm. But nothing that it turned your stomach. You right.
1: know. So you you think it's a positive for for Tipperary then, uh, Francis?
9: Oh, I think it's a it's, it's very very positive for Tipperary, yes. Yeah. Um, for the farming community alone, um, I think for especially for the bee farmers, the way bee farming is going, that they can they could produce silage or maize or bees.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and when, Simon Coveney, well, when Simon Coveney when Simon said, yeah. Francis, that it's creating new revenue streams for farms farmers, do you go along with that, for instance?
9: I would go along with it, Jeff. Yes. And it's and definitely helping, and it will help the, the big dairymen that are uh, have nowhere to go with the slurry and with the nitrates directive. Mm. And rather than going out taking expensive land and making land dear on, on the beef man and um, the tillage man, these mm. men have been put out of business because the dairymen are coming in and just blowing them out of the water. And, so and, and, and what about John's point
1: about it needing grass as well, which would be to feed? The animals, but we'll need them in yeah, these can, digesters. What about yeah, that?
9: Yeah, but it's not going to take all the grass in the country. It will totally need a certain amount of grass, slurry, bees, maize. There's a lot of different things that it's not only agricultural waste that, that, that uh, these digesters will be dealing with. They'll be dealing with um, products from supermarkets and uh, restaurants and aisles and all, all different things. You know, it's not only slurry.
1: All right, stay with me for a moment, slurry, Francis. We,
6: jo- John, yeah. what, what's your reaction to what Francis is saying there? Oh come on! I mean, I've made my points. I mean, it is the one advantage or the one taste that would be very ideal for is where you have a highly industrialized food production system, say like a big, a big pig unit, where they have no place to go with their with their um, with their slurry. They don't have the land, enough land to spread the slurry. Mm. So it's ideal for them; they can get get rid of their their slurry. It's, they they would probably be charged. With for taking the story, they won't be getting an income stream from it. As I explained in the other case, there doesn't seem to be any income stream from it. I mean, we can all sell silage if we want to. We can all do marvelous things. But my point is, it's taking from the amount of food we can produce. So, like, in the case of the thousand cattle and the slurry and 170 acres of grass, if he wants, if somebody has a system like that and wants to go down that route, the next year he can only carry 600 and something cattle because he hasn't got enough silage left to to, to feed them. And that would continue on until he'll be ill mm. he'll be he'll, 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 he'll right. close him down. Right. So, I mean, it's ridiculous then not to take a, a bigger view of it.
1: Okay I mean, and and just before I finish up, John, I'll just give you a I beg your pardon. Francis, I'll give you a final word on on this before I, I I go. You you listen to what John has to say there just now?
9: Yes, but to, re- to reach our emission targets by two thousand and thirty the government are going to have to do something. And as regards the grass, um We're down to 220 at the moment in our nitrates. And it's it's quite possible that the water quality will not improve in the next two Mm. or three years. So we'll be down further. We'll be down to 170. So there will be loads of grass there. And we're well able to produce grass. And these anaerobic digesters would be a place um, for farmers to get money.
1: All right. There, I must leave it, guys. But thanks very much indeed to John and uh, to Francis there. And it's very, very interesting. And we're getting a lot in on that today as well. We'll take a break.
5: If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Now,
1: lots in on the last couple of items. I will get back to it very, very soon, I promise you. it was an incredible weekend of sport, but more specifically for Nina CBS, who claimed a dramatic last gasp victory in their first ever Harty Cup win. Now, it's the second year in a row that the Harty Cup has been claimed by a Tipperary school. The team received a hero's welcome at the school this morning. Just for anybody who missed it, here's our own commentary from Paul Carroll and from Philip Hickey.
4: There's the referee, but now it's a chance for Brian O'Meara from an angle. Oh, what a save from the goalkeeper! Brian O'Meyer from about 25 yards. It was heading for the top corner brilliant save it's still bouncing around the square who's going to get there there's Tracy Tracy has it has he been fouled no sense right for you. pass goes out it's flicked into the back no saved again off the line going out scramble yes it's a go a go for the- yes! a go for Nina CBS. a go for Nina- go a Time, they could be about to win their first ever Hardy Cup Come on! There's so many bodies in there I don't know who got it The puck out goes long And the puck out goes yes over line. It's over the line We're waiting for the full time whistle The referee hasn't blown a jet The ball was flicked back into the back of the net I don't know who it was It could have been number 7 Andy Hull I can't <laughs> tell you There was so many bodies in there It was the mother of all goalmouth scrambles But needed CBS to put it into the back of the net And now they lead 216 to 21 points so the referee is looking at his watch, he's, he's wait now this will be a dramatic, of all dramatic wins.
8: Is he going to give him a chance?
4: Ciarán Foley strikes it. Yeah! That's it! the CBS are the oh. Cup champions! They've won their first ever title in the most oh. dramatic of fashions! They're oh, down by Lee. two points!
1: Oh, what a victory, what a commentary there as well. Let's go to my old friend, uh, Johnny Luby. Good morning to you, Johnny. Good morning, friend, and good morning to the listeners. I'll tell you, the hair would stand on the back of your head, even hearing the repeat of uh, that. What an incredible finish, Johnny.
10: Oh, friend it was unbelievable. I mean, I just described in reality that happened uh, in Cusick Park, and in it, uh, there was the Harkley Cup final. The uh, boys must have sore George to smock me oh, yeah. from uh, that wonderful commentary. I listened to it for most of the day on Saturday and I It was absolutely fantastic. But Nina CBS, which has been there a long time, they've been beaten, I think, in five or six finals, and there was one or two occasions that they could have won, but they had no lady look uh, as such on the day. But last uh, Saturday, uh, of course, uh, they had come through a tough-hard campaign, and there was little between the three or four teams. I mean, Tulles-CBS were only beaten a pint or so by Articol Rees as yeah. well. Uh, and, that, and lo and behold, Andy Duff, uh, the wing-back for uh, Nina, uh, strikes the ball inside, as Mihal O'Hare would say, inside the in mid- the middle of a huge schmozzles lads fighting yes. for their lives and diving on the ground to stop the ball going in and lo and behold, a uh, young uh, uh, duff uh, sticks the ball in the net, you know. It was absolutely wonderful,
1: I'll Yeah, and how special is that? Because, I mean, you you have personal experience of, of this. How special is the hearty cup for a, a school, particularly when, when there's victory, Johnny?
10: Oh, sure. Frank is absolutely fantastic. And when, when one looks at the catchment area and the likes of uh, Nina CBS, with Ballinaire represented, Borges, Nina Roe, Kildangan, Moneygall, uh, and all of those, Boris again, and uh, you also have uh, the silver mines and that. For them areas, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, what it won't do for holding uh, uh, isn't worth talking about. It will do fantastic, uh, 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 fantastic for the holding clubs around there and for Nina Town itself. You know, a town that's absolutely burnt for sport, top of the league in rugby. And the Hullers needed this then to kind of balance it up and show that we have youngsters coming through in Hulling and that. Uh, and for the coaches, you know, uh, uh, it's unbelievable. Nina, uh, manager, Danico O'Donnell, he said his players had taken belief from the history-making exploits of their younger classmates. That was the under-17s coming up, who won the uh, Dean Ryan. This year as well. So, like, it's very hard uh, to win any competition in Munster because, and especially the Dean Ryan and the healthy Cup, like, they other the blue ribbons of hurling, you know. And mm. he said that when he saw Cashel last year winning it for the first time, and uh, Scariff, I think it was the year before that, all winning it for the first time, and he said it has to be our turn now. And he certainly put the belief into the young fellas, you know. And mm. I suppose young McCarthy there, I don't know the chap, but playing with the likes of Tumi Vera in Senior Hurling Championship and then going in training as a young fellow of 18 maybe with uh, on the under-20s uh, in temporary and also on the senior panel maybe for bits of games here and there hey Friend. It's unbelievable, and one would yeah. say well done to the the mentors and well done to the parents and uh, the schools, the national schools that brought them through, because most of the national schools, they do uh, uh, bring out the youngsters for holding and all of that. And the amazing thing about it is, and I was delighted to see it, is that three or four of the uh, so-called senior players on the Hearty Cup team, they were actually the mentors on the sideline from the team in the Dean Ryan Cup. So like, they were bringing them all through to get on
1: which friend. is so important
10: so, so does it bode
1: well for the future of Tipperary hurling because I mean as you know I'm not a sporty but I mean some of that hurling looked to be top notch Johnny I mean oh, can, can we expect that this will feed in to the senior teams Oh, friend, we certainly can here and there. You'll
10: you'll definitely get a couple of players off of them. People might think, oh, we are get a load of the players. Listen, you'll probably get two or three players. I had seen Nina play below in Bancho there about three weeks ago. And I suppose the hard look about him. that day was that they won it so easily. And sometimes when you win a match by maybe 16 or 17 points, you don't uh, learn, an, uh, learn an awful lot. You might be covering over a few cracks here and there. But then they had a, a tough one, games after that. And look, hey... It's unbelievable, friend, isn't it? I'd, I'd love to have been in Nina this morning. Oh, uh, so, yes, uh, yeah. uh, You know, up at the school and back down at the, the town, and, the, that. and I have no doubt there'll be fees uh, uh, all over the place, you know. And they're into a, uh, I, I think it's an All-Ireland semi-final now, and I think the losers go through again, so it could be our squad against uh, Nina eventually down the line in uh, an All-Ireland College's hurling. Hulling. But Nina have the hearty cup, their names are on it, and frank it's absolutely unbelievable it' you know, a brilliant right.
1: altogether? did Jeff, it bring did you bring your back memories, Johnny, back to the I early seventies there I think
10: Jeff, and you can have no doubt about it because in our day in seventy three we I think uh, we played in a cup called the Cotton Fad, which is the Munster colleges e halling, yeah. and the price for winning that was a place in a hearty cup for the quarter final or semi final, and uh, that's the way it was then, and uh, we had beaten a, a right good Nina team in the in the Curtin-Fordrick final inside and in told having beaten Temple Moore who were the top class goal at the time and uh, lo and behold we're now in the Hearty Cup semi-final and we beat De La Salle of Water below and killed and what really I suppose uh, we didn't realise they were on a high we'd have taken on Man United because now we're in a, a, a Hearty Cup final but there was only one week between the semi-final and the final. Sure, mother of God, the school hadn't settled down. We had youngsters looking for our autographs in first year and everything else. It hey, was unbelievable. But, as I said, on, uh, was it was a fabulous... We our Friday last night, was we hmm. know what it's like to be beaten and it's not a nice bloody oh, thing. God, to I can imagine. So maybe Donald yeah. maybe Donald might have said it to uh, a demeanor lad, say but the fellow down there in Cashel, Johnny Luby, <laughs> he knows what it's like to be beaten. So we're not going down this, uh, yeah. that road, you know. But, hey, but friend, put the parishes as well around us. Ah,
1: brilliant, brilliant. You
10: know, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. I helped your friend. there. That's a rough subject you're on at the moment, that emissions and talk is wasted. Oh. You've to be... Well, Could you you, a, you know
1: about all that stuff, from, from again, from your checkered <laughs> past, Johnny, wouldn't you?
10: <laughs> <laughs> I would, yeah, Fran. Like, look, they're talking about the rivers and the whole very large. I think most towns and villages in Ireland have no treatment plants whatsoever. Yeah. There's water sewerage flowing into the river shore and every the other river that's out there. Yeah. I'd like to tell uh, uh, Simon Corbyn, listen, I went fishing there during the summer, friend, and I genuinely thought I caught a salmon. What was it but a bloody child's nappy? <laughs> You know, inside in the middle of the whole
1: Oh, you're serious, God. <laughs> yeah. I? Listen, but before France, I, I, I let you go, will you give a mention to, to rugby as well? Because, of course, great victory for Ireland over the weekend. As well. Oh, yeah,
10: absolutely fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. You know, on Friday night last we were in Bailey's, of course. Stilman was asking for you, but we told him we had to get out and go to T.J. Ryan next door uh, there, uh to watch the uh, yes. rugby game. Hey, it was unbelievable. It was a fantastic win. I actually couldn't understand why uh, France were the complete uh, favours. I just... Genuinely, I thought that it was even Joe Joyce, and I couldn't understand how Ireland were 2-1. to one. But that young McCarthy, Andy his grandson, he is such a huge oh, talent, crazy, maybe yeah. a raw talent. Yeah. Uh, and that. But he has strength. That's, that, that's unbelievable. And look, for all the lads there, hey, it's fantastic. And, of course, the big one that they have away then is, uh, I think they have England away in Twickenham, but they're probably at home to Scotland, Wales, and uh, Italy. And then, of course, Munster went to... Uh, super value party keys you got, uh, right.
1: you, you got it right
10: you got it right well done <laughs> 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 to play there, to play a uh, 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 huge game where over 40,000 people it's just glad to see the places like that and people able to get in and they're home you know what I mean to the few quid for party all the sports support each other and that's what it's all about oh, that's, you
1: know? that's, that's for certain well Johnny real pleasure as always and thanks for talking to us this morning not uh, at
10: all French but, we'll probably see you on Friday I'm uh, bringing the fella back, back here up to, to, to Shannon Airport he get three or four days in Clanmilder. so look
1: yeah I heard but, you yeah. were in the old bridge there because I was speaking to, to Desi <laughs> earlier on and he said he saw you he met you outside <laughs> while you were having a cigarette and the pint well,
10: yeah hopefully the Mullins are listening to this in my book Desi just to stop the crack going. Desi was the greatest of all the Mullins.
1: What? <laughs> You're <laughs> starting no. a row now, Johnny, <laughs> on a Tuesday morning after a bank holiday.
10: Yeah, Fran, I think he's coming on, with you talking about a topical subject or he,
1: something. He was, was on with us earlier on while you were still asleep. You see, that's Jesus, that's what. Fran, I, mean.
10: I wasn't. I was looking up the, the healthy cup. <laughs> and reading it up that's exactly what I was doing. Good,
1: good luck Johnny look after hey, yourself thanks, sorry, you Thank you bye all, bye you. that's the great Johnny Luby with us uh, and of course uh, all the sports covered uh, this evening on Extra Time with our Ronan and uh, the team there, Mary was on to say Fran what a wonderful commentary as a parent of a Hearty Cup winner uh, Nina CBS brought back some wonderful memories and it's such a special medal which will always be treasured in our home
0: Thanks
1: Pat. Uh, John is in London uh, this morning listening to us and he says you have me all confused Fran. I thought it was Friday when I heard uh, Johnny Luby. Well Johnny you're not half as confused as Johnny Luby is I can tell you <laughs> this morning. Somebody wondering does Johnny have a little hangover this morning? Well he doesn't because I saw him jogging out of the Fourpenny Road there uh, just at about half a six this morning so he's, he's flying. Um, Barry was on to say I love saying this uh, Fran and say it to Johnny it's a North Tipperary team Barry's always flying the flag for North Tip, you can be sure. Um, good morning, friend. Lovely to hear Johnny Luby this morning and also lovely to chat to you in Clanmel last week. Oh, that's in from Maraid. I met Maraid while we were both having a, a lovely lunch in uh, Mulcahy's. Hello, Maraid. Lovely, lovely to hear from you today. Um, on TJ Cahir on Friday night seemingly a Carrick Swansman, Sean O'Shea received uh, the GAA President's Award for a lifetime of service to the GAA and his community and he did Carrick proud it says here, well many, I didn't see that but many congratulations to Sean and uh, to his family there and uh, well done indeed now last week and this week we're putting the spotlight on dementia and in March of last year the National Dementia uh, Inclusive Community Symbol was was launched, as you might remember, and the symbol was created as a a direct result, really, of people with dementia wanting to see themselves represented and considered properly in the communities as well. Now, it was developed in collaboration with people with dementia and those caring and are working to support them. And the symbol acts as a a sign of solidarity for people with dementia and their families, of course, and also joining together all of the work and dedication that's happening locally to make an impact across the county. And since its launch, individuals, uh, services, groups and businesses alike are displaying the symbol in local communities. We're delighted to report. When it
5: comes to supporting people living with dementia, you might ask, is there something I can do? The answer is actually more than you think. Nine in ten of us believe people living with dementia have the right to be active citizens in their communities. But sometimes they need support to stay connected and engaged. It starts with understanding that everyone with dementia has a different experience. So talk to them and their family. Ask them how they are and how you can help. Look around your community. Is it dementia inclusive? Is your social or sports club welcoming people with dementia? Is your shop accessible and are spaces and amenities easy to use? It's often the small things that make the biggest difference. By being the one person who asks, what can I do? You are making that difference. For more information, visit understandtogether.ie or call the National Helpline provided by the Alzheimer Society of Ireland on free phone one 341 341 from the HSE.
1: Thanks, Shay. Uh, Eighteen hundred nine three eight double zero seven. That's a free phone number if you want to speak to Doc, and of course the text and WhatsApp is only three three double one double three. Double one. Now we're well aware of the pressures on people trying to secure rented accommodation and unfortunately it looks like the problem is only getting worse and part of the reason that it's getting worse is the constant uh, constant, uh, ongoing flow, I suppose, of Ukrainian refugees into the country. Now the issue was raised in the Doyle last week by Kerry TD, Danny Healy-Ray, and here's what he had to say.
7: I'm asking for a very serious anomaly to be addressed. If you are a local Calani or Kerry person seeking to rent a private house, the only help you will get from the state is HAP or RAS, which many house owners won't entertain. But if you are a new Ukrainian, the house owner will get €800 Euros per month tax-free. Should local uh, Kerry and Irish people have to hope to, uh, to compete against that. I want the same tax exemption to apply to our own people trying to
1: rent as well. Now, being a landlord himself, of course, he's well-placed to deliver that uh, information. But, of course, the issues are not just in Kerry. Here in Tipperary, uh, the County Council sought expressions of interest for eight new houses built over the past year in casual. Within six hours of the application going up, hundreds had applied. Some had so that it led to the site crashing. Community activist Liam Brown uh, joins me now. Good morning to you, Liam. Yeah, good morning, Fran. How are you? And good to talk to you today. You, you've you been highlighting this, Liam, because you're hearing from people. What what are you hearing from people locally in the town, Liam?
7: Yeah, Fran, look, I've been highlighting it for, for quite a while now. Um, I'll go on to the, the, the Ukrainian anomaly in a minute. But, I mean, look, the eight houses that have been made available in Cashel, they're the first house that have been made, a cash, made available in Cashel as, as council houses for nearly 15 years. And, like, as soon as they were put up last week on the choice bid, based letting system there was hundreds of people applied like you just said there which means that look whatever eight people get those houses and it'll be fantastic that they'll have homes for themselves but there's going to be hundreds of people disappointed and some of the stories that people were ringing me asking me for help last week just absolutely horrific and it's hard to speak to them when you realize that i can't see any end to this because i don't see any proper plan put in place by either council locally or the government nationally to fix the problem. We're simply not building enough houses and we're not building them fast enough. And now we have the Ukrainian anomaly kicking in, which is making it even harder. Because
1: mm. Would you explain that to us, Liam?
7: I will, yeah. like I, I said this was going to happen. Look, last year, when, when... or Sorry, two years ago now, when Ukrainian people started coming to Ireland, we started to put them into hotels and look, sports halls and whatever to begin with. But it, it became very obvious that that wasn't going to be enough. So they began to go into private houses and people said, look, if we're going to look after some Ukrainians, we need some help from the government. So what the government did was they they gave an €800 tax-free payment to somebody who was looking after a Ukrainian person in the house. But over time, uh, after a couple of months, once once Ukrainian people got settled, they began to move out of, say, back rooms in houses or people giving them rooms in houses and started to rent houses themselves. But they were still getting the €800 a month ARP payment, it's called. But the problem with that is is the 800 euro a month that they get is tax free to a landlord whereas the only support an Irish person will get if they need rental support will mm-hmm. be HAP which the maximum is 600 euro and the average I just checked this morning in Tipperary is only 500 euro plus that money is if a landlord takes HAP they have to be they are taxed on the full rent whereas if they take the 800 euro ARP payment they don't pay tax
1: so, so it's more though, attractive for them to house a Ukrainian it, family, then is that? Is it, that it's it?
7: now it's now much more attractive for a landlord to rent a house to a Ukrainian uh, either person or family. I mean, this could be a single person. Like I, I'll give you an example, fine. Um, one young girl rang me. One young lady rang me last week. She has four kids. She's paying twelve hundred euro a month in rent here. She's getting five hundred and fifty euro euro of that, so she has to come up with six hundred and fifty euro herself. Now the landlord who's renting to her will only get six hundred euro, six hundred seventy five euro himself because he has to pay tax but if he rents the same house to a single uh, Ukrainian person, male or female, he'll get 800 euro tax free. So it's now becoming much more attractive to rent to Ukrainian people and like I said, the problem is the council are not building enough houses so we don't have enough council houses for people who need them and they're trying to replace it with the HAP system because Ross is gone Danny spoke about Ross in the door but that's now gone. So people are encouraged to go to private landlords and they'll be given some support through the HAP system but like I said, you're now having a brand new uh, community of people, Ukrainian people, who are now also competing for those houses. But they're actually mm. getting much more money in in state support for the houses than an Irish person. So it's become much more it's much right. much more desirable.
1: And, and, and the last thing we want, and I know the last thing you would want, Liam, is a situation where people are kind of fighting against each other in some sort of way. But you, you're putting the blame firmly with the government for this, aren't you?
7: It is fine because, like I said, we every single time I'm every single time I'm on radio with you, I talk about planning. This thing could be like this thing could be seen a long way back. Like, you know, if you were going to give eight hundred euros to somebody and they were able to go to a landlord with that money, it's a lot easier for the landlord to take that money tax free than to get money from an Irish person. Are you with me, Fran? I'm with
1: you, I'm with you, yeah. Oh,
7: sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, I went yeah. up. So, I mean, like I, I said, and it's now going to be even ex- exacerbated even more, Fran, because the change in the Ukrainian policy from giving them full uh, social welfare and housing them finished on, on the first week, on basically this week. And in three months' time, the state will not give any housing to new Ukrainian uh, arrivals. They will tell them to go and look for uh, housing in the private market. Yes. So any anyone that comes from now on is going to be in the private market in, mm. in, in May, and they're going to be given 800 euro. And uh, that's now, what I was
1: going to ask you. Are you sure of that? They, they will be still benefiting from the 800 euro at that point, will they?
7: They will, because there's been absolutely no change to the, to the system with ARP. Right. So what you're also finding, Fanny, is, is and this is a good thing, you're, you're now hearing more and more Ukrainian people are beginning to work in the system, and that's great if there's jobs there, and they can do jobs, and they can, they can help with the economy. That's all well and good, perfect. But you can't have a situation where a Ukrainian person could be working in a job in Ireland, standing beside an Irish person, and effectively getting an extra €800 euro a month off the government for their rent. Because that's that's re- realistically what is happening. Is this, you know If a Ukrainian person wants to rent a house in cash, they will get €800 euro to begin with. And then if they want to work and pay extra on top of that, that's well and good. But the reality is an Irish person is going to have to pay €1,600 euro in rent to a landlord for the landlord to get the same benefit as giving the same house to a Ukrainian person for €800. So you can see the rents are beginning to creep up because they're being based on what the next person in the market can pay. And if the next person in the market can pay is a Ukrainian person, then that's going to mean the Irish person... And, going and to Liam, to are you hearing any
1: positives on this? Like, I mean, I heard this morning that uh, government lands now, more of government lands will be made available for housing in the medium to long term. And there's always the excuse that, well, you, you can't find developers now, you can't find, uh, you know, builders and block layers and all of that kind of thing. It's very difficult and they're doing their best. What are they now, about 30,000-a-year houses built. Fine, we're,
11: we're,
7: we're, we're building about 35,000 houses last year. That, that's what Daryl Bryan said and he wants a pat on the back for that. And we're all constantly hearing this, we don't have enough um, builders, we don't have enough people in the construction industry. Fine, in 2002, 20 years ago, we were building 90,000 houses and we had the workers then. Now a lot of them left and the reason they left, Fan, is because they didn't have any certainty that building mm-hmm. would go on. We go through this country, boom and bust, boom and bust. Now Let me have a go at all three main political parties because two of them are saying we're doing this and Sinn Féin are saying we're not doing enough. The reality is is if we're going to fix the housing problem, it's not going to be fixed by the next government. It's going to be fixed over 10 years and 15 years because you cannot put back in the amount of houses that are needed in in a year or two's time. So we need to stop all political parties shouting at each other over who's building enough and who's not building enough and put in a proper plan that's going to be done out over 15-20 years. Now if you can give builders the certainty that we're going to build x amount of houses over that length of time. Now let the private market build them if they wish but let the private market know that if they don't build enough the government will step in and top up the amount that are built. You're probably looking at 60,000 houses a year. Well that will give builders certainty that there will be contracts coming for the next 15-20 years. The biggest fear that builders have is that they put a lot of money into a site, and like we had in, in 2008, a site gets half-finished, they go bust, we have a 10-year uh, drop-off in house building, in which almost no house is building, and we have half-finished sites. We need to have certainty, but we need to have yeah. changes as well. Planned. For example, the eight houses built in Cashel, they took nearly two years to be built, and they probably took another two years on top of that uh, to be planned and put in place. Now, last year, we built 62 houses in Taurus for Ukrainian, Ukrainian, Ukrainian refugees, which were done, planned, built, and, and delivered within nine months. Now, those houses are fantastic houses. Anybody who's seen them has said that they would be damn glad to go into the houses. I know enough yeah, about but people they they,
1: the they, they They were, what, what kind of houses do you call them? They were... Uh, modular, modular, modular houses. Yes. Yeah. But it's not a totally different system. I mean, they, there's not the... Uh, it's, it's a totally
7: different. Yeah. of course it's a totally different system but we have this idea in, in Ireland that because they're modular houses they're not good houses mm. half of Sweden is modular houses half of Germany are modular houses most of the Baltic states nowadays are built with modular housing I mean we're still building houses uh, the way we built them 30 and 40 years ago where you know everything else we're not building cars the same way we built them 40 years ago if we can build houses that are a-rated, which these houses are, I mean, these are A-rated, environmentally friendly, very, very energy efficient houses that can be built within nine months. We have to look at them as part of the solution going forward. We have people building log cabins on their own on their own land, which they're getting 30 and 40 year guarantees for. Yes. Structural guarantees for. Yeah.
1: You know, well, you know, we one, had one gentleman doing it and he was told to take it down because he didn't have the proper I, permission. Which was
7: absolutely disgraceful. A person who sorted out their own, their own yeah. housing needs be told to take it down, instead of actually the council sitting down and saying, look, let's put in some regulations, let's put in, uh, find out what can be done to get these houses built. Like, we're building twenty-five thousand houses a year, Fran, when we should be building 60, which means every year we build 35,000 houses, we're going an extra 25,000 nice. houses behind. We can see it, Fran, the last, the last figures I got for Cashel uh, were that 200 people were on the list in the Tipperary area that prioritised Cashel alone. Eight hundred people are on the list in the whole Cashel Tipperary area. Wow! But we're pro- we're providing eight houses when there's eight hundred people on a list, and that list is getting bigger. Because fine, there's another thing that's re- that happening. It's, it's beginning to become more obvious to myself. Is you know, women are finding it much much harder if they separate to get into new housing because you know if they if they've been with partners or they've been with husbands yeah. for a, a long length of time, well then their housing needs are based on two people and two incomes. If they separate. They're now back down to one income, but they probably have too much money based on previous incomes to get on a housing list. So they're now stuck in the rental sector. So that's discrimination, isn't it? I mean, that really is
1: discrimination.
7: It's massive discrimination, and it's something like one young young lady split up from her boyfriend, and the two of them, they divided up what they had, and they went their separate ways, and they were quite happy. But when she tried to get a mortgage, she was only offered €40,000 of a mortgage in the bank. The boyfriend was offered hundred and eighty thousand euro from the bank. Wow. Because you know, because women have you know, there's a possibility they may have more children or yeah. there's a there's a a belief that because women are the primary caregivers for children, that there's more it's more likely they're going to be out of work more often. So it's completely discriminatory against females who separate us. But there's nothing has changed in the meantime to say that we recognise that this has is beginning to become more more apparent, begin beginning to become more common. And we've got to make allowances
1: All right. for it. All right, Liam, I must leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning, Liam. Thank you. Good no morning. Problem. Good morning Thanks. to you. That's okay. a community Bye-bye. activist in Cashel, uh, Liam Brown, speaking to us there. 1800 938 007. Back in just a moment with some breaking news tip today with Fran Curry
0: with Slattery's Garage Puck On you can't beat experience with over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts, call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today, 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie
1: well, the breaking news this morning is former Taoiseach John uh, Br- uh, Bruton has died aged uh, 76 in a statement. His uh, family announced his death with a deep sadness. He died peacefully in the Matta private hospital in Dublin surrounded by his loving family. Early uh, this morning, following a long illness, he was a good husband, a good father, and a true patriot. And we will miss him greatly, they said. Now, uh, Mr. Bruton was Taoiseach from 1994 to 1997, former Tipperary TD Minister for State. Tom Hayes joins me now. Good morning to you, Tom. Morning, friend. And Thanks for your, thanks for your time this morning. Very sad news, uh, Tom.
11: Oh, shocked. I couldn't believe this morning, and I got a phone call at John's passing. I knew he was being ill for quite some time and you know the, the stories or I suppose the news wasn't wasn't good and wasn't going to be good but really that he, he went this he went this quickly was a shock to everybody I think a mm. man was so strong you know he's from a family of that all lived long lives and his yeah. um, father lived in well and his father mother lived in his 90s today he's gone at 76 years of age so to just tell you for yeah. um, life, and you know, a man made a fantastic contribution and that he's taken out just like that. But that's, that's it's in my sympathies, I suppose, to his family, to Vanola and, uh, and his wife, and indeed Richard, and his children, and all and indeed the whole Finnegale family, and people that around this constituency around the country that knew him extremely well.
1: You knew him very well, Tom. Uh, what, what manner of man was he?
11: Oh. You know, he was very direct, very open, uh, I suppose, uh, very outspoken, really. He'd tell you what, there was no hidden agenda with John Bruton. Mm -hmm. Everything, uh, he'd tell you uh, what the situation was, and there was no hiding behind a a shroud or anything like that. Very open, very open about what he wanted to do. He had an open, he had a vision for our country, he had a vision for Europe, and a, a vision for the world. And I think a very, very learned man a man that was committed to Ireland so much and he wanted, you know, people to prosper, he wanted people to do well, and he believed in the, uh, an open economy and he believed that Europe's contribution, uh, Europe to help us in, in such a way, help us along that road, would indeed be really helpful.
1: We, we, we see Stormont uh, has been put together again at the weekend. I, I often think, though, Tom, that when people list out uh, the... Uh, the 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 main actors, I suppose, in getting the peace agreement, um, the Good Friday Agreement, they they sometimes leave out John Bruton and they forget how deeply involved he was.
11: They do indeed, and you know, he had a major contribution, I suppose, really from his, his uh, from his background. Uh, maybe he he wouldn't people would have the view that he wasn't really the best person and probably being so outspoken and so direct and he would speak to the Protestants and indeed the Catholic community very directly and he would tell them the position so I suppose people were fearful but as it turned out, it was transpired he was actually very, very forceful behind the scenes and very, very supportive of all that happened even from you know, the early days and the Good Friday Agreement all, all, all through uh, he, you know, he was very very supportive of the government here and indeed helped in any way that he could to um, bring about that peace but you know there was huge more the economy here that you know the economy grew under his stewardship by eight percent that was the celtic tiger years yes and you know that he 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 helped in all that that work to bring our economy through i suppose difficult times after that
1: with your own love of agriculture i guess you would have had a lot in common with him
11: well, he was, obviously, he was spokesman on agriculture uh, in the very early days, yeah. I think before he, went in, before he went into government in the 19, late 70s, because he was elected to the TD, remember, at 22 years of age. Was he indeed? Yeah, and uh, first-time election and stood for the Dáil and went straight in and became party spokesman on agriculture that day. And then he went on when government were, was formed under Gareth's children in 81. He became minister for finance. Mm. and, uh, you know, he he, he had huge contributions to make. But going back to agriculture, coming from a meat and coming from a farming background, he had a great knowledge, but he never really practiced as a farmer. He's more of an academic. He wanted, he wanted politics. He wanted uh, the bigger world, and, he, you know, he studied. He had a very, very he's a huge brain, huge intellect, and uh, mm. he was he was always challenging himself to do good and to see you know the world stage was what he wondered on. And, and, but he really I suppose thrived at when he became the EU ambassador to the US yes he really uh, made made a huge impact there and it was for the betterment of Ireland and worked closely with our governments at all stages and he, and that was one strength about why he was very committed to vinnagle and very strong behind the party he was very loyal for Ireland and whoever was whoever was committed whoever was the government he was always uh, be, in the background, be very, very supportive of while the policies would be played out in the Dáil, but behind the scenes, he mm. worked extremely hard for, for our country. And I think that's one of the things that
1: he, he will be remembered for. And even in recent years, he was still rather outspoken, uh, as you say, speaking his mind, whether you agreed or disagreed uh, with him. Have, have you spoken to him in recent times? Too? I
11: spoke to him before Christmas. And Did I you? knew yeah. that, you know, I, I mean, I knew he, he wasn't too keen in talking about his, his illness and didn't want to talk. Yeah. He's very private man and we res- everyone respected that but you know I kept in touch. I met Richard there some time ago and yeah. so I, I actually only a few weeks ago just met a friend of his and I'd seen him out out walking there just a- after Christmas but there, you know, he was gone very, very shook and, yeah. and we you know the word was that um, he wasn't going to—he wasn't going to come through it. But that's life, and you know that's what everyone, I suppose, a lot of people have to face. And he yeah. had to face it at a relatively young age when he could have contributed a lot more. When he had a brain, and as you would say. His outspokenness. Uh, I welcome that. I love that. I thought it, mm-hmm. that was one of the characteristics of him, that, you know, you, you knew where you stand with mm-hmm. John Bruton, and I remember he was here in the by election. A lot of people around Tipperary would have met him because, you know, he gave one of the by-elections here. I know it a long time ago now to be talking about it, but his friendship, his friendship with Theresa Herne, the late mm-hmm. Theresa Heron and me, yeah. you know, uh, that'll go back if we remember that. And he he's a great lover of Tipperary, and he always reckoned that, the politics of meat and the politics of Tipperary were very similar. There was a lot of, um, you know, it's a good, rich agricultural area, but also very, very strong Republican, um, you know, strongholds in both our counties.
1: Well, Tom, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, a sad occasion indeed and sad news there, but thanks for coming on with us, Tom. No Thank problem you. At all, and Thank you. Bye-bye by to you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. uh, that's uh, former uh, Tipperary TD and Minister for State, uh, Tom Hayes, speaking to us there on uh, the death ...of uh, John Bruton, the former Taoiseach John Bruton... ...0833113311. Now, Sarah Cycle is one of the big fundraisers... ...for the Tipperary Branch of Down Syndrome Ireland... ...and this year's uh, is a very special one indeed. Our reporter Alison Highland travelled to to Mechel 21... in Thirless to speak to some of the incredible people... ...ahead of this great event.
12: Hi, I'm Therese Where are you from, Therese? Baltas, Well, I like the farming... You like performing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were
13: telling me you prefer dancing to singing, do you? Yeah, because I'm not the strongest boy. Yes. <laughs> into me, whore. And you like Nathan Carter? I do, yeah. Do you like performing as well? I do. I like singing. three. You're a sportsman, are you? Yeah. Who, who do you support, then? Bursley. Bursley? Good. you said that very strong. <laughs> You're a big fan, are you?
8: Yeah, my, my name is Darren Boy from Bursley, and I like Prince Matter. We are in college, in, in college. Uh, ter, ter, in, the course is called lunch On. It's funded by the Tipperary EBT.
13: Amy, Therese and Dermot are just some of the amazing service users at Mehal 21 in Thurless. The incredible facility is the activity centre of the Tipperary branch of Down Syndrome Ireland. The semi-detached house on Abbey Road was converted during lockdown funded by charity events and a massive volunteering effort. They're now preparing for Sarah's Cycle later on this month, which is one of their main fundraisers. The Cycle is a popular event, growing each year. It's in memory of one of their members, Sarah Dillon, who sadly passed away. This year's event marks her 10th anniversary. I went to Mehel this week and spoke to some of those involved Tina Clark and her husband Ray from Racy Sports are regular visitors to Mahel teaching service users how to cycle. Our start with
14: Down Syndrome Tipperary was a phone call from Cora to see would we do some cycling during the week to maybe even on a Saturday to try and bring on some of the students. We had been working in Down syndrome with Down Syndrome students in Cormac, previous to that and it was just a nice little add-on we yeah. went from working there Monday to Friday to here on a Saturday so some of the students got an extra tuition on a Saturday and some it was the first time ever coming. Yeah. Out of all of the groups in Cormac, they don't all have Down Syndrome so you weren't getting them all but at least here on a Saturday they were getting that extra little bit of help and the majority of, of kids, doesn't matter what age they are, all they can manage is a half an hour at a time yeah. so half an hour slots here on a Saturday and now we have changed from Saturday because we have other commitments on Saturdays. We do Wednesdays here in Mehel 21 in Thirlis. So we're with adults in the early part of the day and then we're with the juniors after they finish school from three o'clock onwards on a Wednesday. And what um, Paul was saying to me earlier is the sense of achievement that they get from it is incredible. It is and it's the confidence in everyday life. It's not just cycling, it's that Fear when they start, can I even get my leg over the saddle, down to getting to cycle or even striding and gliding where they manage to lift their feet off the ground for an extra second. That then moves on to everyday stuff. Can they walk up and down stairs by themselves? Can they go to the shop and get an ice cream by themselves? All these little things. They sound so simple, but it's getting over little hurdles all the time and proving to yourself you can achieve those
13: little hurdles. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about the plan then for this year. The Tour de Mejel is going to be a big one. Tell me about that.
14: We are going to do our best to help out here at Mejel 21 to organise the Tour de Mejel at the end of June. So it'll be the last Sunday of June. We want it to be more of a fun environment relaxed, have a family atmosphere have all ages included so anything from a balance bike all the way up to adults who would like to do 100k cycle so whatever they they like doing themselves if they want to turn up on their racing bike with their clip-in pedals and all the rest brilliant you're more than welcome equally if you want to turn up on your electric bike or you want to turn up with your balance bike as a kid no problem whatsoever we're hoping that it'll be a very inclusive event and it will be more about the fun of taking part in, in an achievable challenge as opposed to a big long goal that you would have.
13: Orla is one of the speech therapists in Mehal and she explained how the funding raised from Sarah Cycle
15: will go towards providing much needed services. So a lot of it is used for our speech and language therapy service that we provide for all our members and speech and because we get no government funding we like 100% rely on fundraising like Sarah Cycle Um, the speech and language therapy is so important for our kids so that we can provide them with enough therapy. Like, some of our parents are travelling from such long distances that they can't come once a week, so then we have the funding that we can go out and visit their schools or their creches or their day services. Um, also, that we have the funding for resources for our therapy sessions and also so that me and Susanna, our other speech therapists, have the funding to go and do training courses um to continue our professional development. Um, it's also so important that we have funding to do our camps. We do Easter, Halloween, Summer and Christmas camps where they also do extra activities like the cycling, the sports, pottery um, and they actually get to use their speech and language skills that they learnt in therapy and put them into practice by socialising with each other. Yeah. Um, we also hold adult lunches. A couple of times a year where we invite our members from different day services and they get to meet each other and keep up their friendships. Um, so, yeah, and the therapy is just so important. Like, it's life-changing for all kids with Down syndrome and adults. Orla, I know you're, you're not here that long. How long are you here? Uh, I started in July of last year so um, this job Having just graduated wasn't it? Yeah, yeah just graduated So, but I'm familiar with the service for Goodwill because my sister is a member here she's 20 with Down syndrome uh, so I've seen the benefits of her receiving speech and language from mm. like one year old and how much it has benefited her
13: it's still, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a crime, to be honest, isn't it, that organisations like Down Syndrome Tipperary and Mehill are the ones that have to provide that. And we were talking earlier, there's a block that is provided by the HSC for some who are lucky to get it. It's a shame to see that th- there isn't more focus on that, isn't there?
15: Yeah, it's an awful shame that, like, sometimes we are... Like If if our members didn't have us to come to therapy, they probably wouldn't have any other therapy to go for. Um, So that's why the funding is so great, that we do get it and that we can provide them with therapy. Um, And also a lot of our members go to um, college here in Turles. Um, They're doing a latch-on programme. Um, which is a literacy and technology program, which is funded by Tipperary ETV, and um, they love it. And it's—I asked some of our adults today what their favourite thing about going to on was, and one of them said teaching other people love signs. So love is a keyword signing system that we use to aid their communication, and it's so empowering for our older. Members to teach other people love mm-hmm. signs. Um, someone else said they loved helping the teachers and their friends. They're reading and writing, maths and computers, and. The latch-on programme, they usually go there on Mondays and Wednesdays, but they've now started an eight-week programme here in Mehill where they are going to be learning healthy eating, they're going to be learning employability skills and maths for life, so it's really getting them ready to go out into the working world. And that's why this funding is so important. Yeah, exactly.
8: Hi, Alison. uh, My name is Paul Butler. I'm a committee member here in Down syndrome, Tipperary. I have a daughter, 16, who has uh, Down syndrome, uh, so the role of committee members here in the the, the um, centre is basically a bit of everything. We get involved in every activity that goes on, but I suppose our primary aim is fundraising, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, the centre itself is a quite an expensive centre to run. We have to pay staff and uh, so on. So we have to start every year with... Uh, approximately two hundred thousand euros just to, to to get the place up and running and that's to keep a, it that's running. That's a lot of
13: pressure at the beginning of the year before you even look at anything else. It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So
8: that's, I mean, that's what you're faced with at the start of every every year. Uh, so that's why. Our fundraising is very important to us and one of the, one of our big fundraisers is Sarah Cycle, which will be running this year on the 24th of, um, of February.
16: And
13: this is a special one, of course, because it's the 10-year anniversary. Yeah,
8: yeah. Sarah, Sarah was a member of the branch here before Mehel, the centre here in Thirlis even existed. Um, at that stage, when she was born and when my daughter was born we basically had to travel the length and breadth of Tipperary just to kind of, um, we'll say, get speech and language therapy in rooms that we had rented and areas that we had rented. And there was never a chance to get all the kids and adults together uh, before that. So when the centre was built here in Thurlis, thanks to the previous committee and the huge work that that they put in and all of the the other volunteers, uh, we finally had a place that we could uh, call our own that they... Kids could call their safe place. It's a place they come to meet their friends. Uh, it's a place that the family members can come to meet other family members. Um, we can discuss everything that's going on with our kids. We can discuss ideas that they have, or we we'll say little activities that they may may have um, their kids involved in. And it's a it's a whole kind of a a spreading of ideas throughout the, the, with the kids and with the families and with the adults of course uh, one of our big priorities this year is to try and improve our adult services and you've seen today here yeah. in the centre what what a wonderful group that they are and how they actually love coming here and love being involved and love meeting their friends because as the children get older with the best will in the world uh, they begin to get a little bit more isolated um you can i can understand why we'll say teenagers don't really invite uh, members with down syndrome out to parties or to pubs or to wherever Um, so we have to provide that service for ourselves and that's what the center in tipper in has allowed us to do
13: Tell me about Sarah's cycle then as well it's something that is gathering strength I think every year um, and is developing every year then what can we see this year from the cycle and the fundraiser that maybe we haven't seen before
8: Well firstly uh, it's the 10th anniversary of Sarah's death unfortunately Uh, Sarah was only 10 when she passed away so um, herself and her family have been great supporters of the centre all through these years despite their loss Uh, so the cycle this year starts in uh, the tooth campus. So we're hoping to kind of uh, have it a much more, uh, we'll say, organised affair, um, put on a little bit of entertainment over there. We provide, we will be providing um, plenty of car parking, of course, for the people who come, but we'll also provide food for the cyclists when they come back. Uh, we'll provide... Changing facilities, showering facilities. So we're trying to make it a little bit more uh, easy, I suppose, for people to get involved and a little more, more pleasant for people to get involved, weather permitting.
13: Yeah. And some of the members here, of course, will be involved in some of the organisation, and the work
8: of it too. That's it. The one thing this year that we're going to be doing, especially when we're in a more sa- a safer environment um, in Thoos, is that we'll be able to get our adult members involved in helping us organise it. Um, I suppose one thing that has, that has um, stunned me over the years as I've been a member of this and as I've seen many of the kids growing up and growing into young adults is that uh, we do not give them enough credit for what they can do. Uh, we, we have a tendency as parents and think every parent knows the situation. We do too much for our own kids. Uh, but. The adults have begun to stamp their independence on the place and they want to get involved and they want to do things and they're telling us to go away and let them do do their stuff. So we're hoping to provide, um, uh, we'll say, an environment for them to help us out with the cycle. This will be one of our first times doing it, um, but it certainly won't be the last because uh, one of our biggest... um, priorities this year is to try and help develop our adult services, yeah. to try and get our adults involved in employment both around Turles and of course all over the county because we have members travelling from Gray, Nina from Carrick and Shure, from Clonmel from Care, Tipperary Town so this is this isn't the Thirless Down syndrome, it's Tipperary Down syndrome, and it's said a big county.
13: Yeah. Anyone then who's looking for more information on Sarah Cycle, how they can donate, or how they can get involved, or how they can register for it, where should they go?
8: Well, the uh, cell, the cycle itself is being organised through Eventbrite. So if they just go onto a, the, the Eventbrite site and site and look for Sarah Cycle, uh, they get all the information. Uh, they can see information on our own. Facebook page that's Down Syndrome Tipperary Facebook page um, and any if they wish to contact the office at any stage um, any member of the committee will talk to them and give them whatever, whatever details they know they're looking for.
12: Hi there my name is Wendy Knightley I'm a teacher with Tipperary ETB and I also work with Down Syndrome Tipperary from Hill 21. Paul was talking to us about the,
13: the emphasis and the focus being on adult services then this year do you think that's often overlooked?
12: Yeah, I suppose there's, a bit, there's always seems to be a big focus on children and adolescents, but I suppose you're going to be an adult longer than you're going to be a child. And I suppose it's really, really important that our adults do have opportunities within the community, not just day services, but for employment, for social, and to, be, to make friends and to have opportunities. So I suppose what the committee are really focusing on here is building... The links within the community for our adults and it is focusing on um the functional life skills obviously we had covid which we had like a two-year gap and for a lot of our young people you know so it is sometimes trying to fill in some of those gaps that or those scars that covid left um but also just to func- to focus on those functional life skills like for example getting a job or what you do in a job money is a, a big thing you know how telling the difference between coins and notes and not just tapping your card. and um, the time as you'll see Alison, we were doing the time this morning time is important for every job but like it's really important there that our adults are um independent that they can you know differentiate between their own money um they can tell the time and we're all, like i suppose it's also around problem solving and decision making so that people that our members are making their own decisions and their own decision making so we've also recently got funding um from St Stephen's Green Trust and that was to focus on um, our members having their voice heard. So it's as we know it's an election year, and our member, our adult members, are entitled to vote just like everyone else. So we have the funding allows us to establish an RAC, which stands for a, a Regional Advisory Council. So Down Syndrome Ireland have um, national advisory councils, which are in Dublin, and I think there's one in Meath. it will kill me now. I think there and there's also one in Louth, but we haven't had the opportunity to have one in Tipperary. So the idea is that we um form uh, a regional advisory council to feed into the National Council and that was really for our adult members to have their voice heard on issues that impact them um, may not be voting at the moment but things like access to services housing um education uh, training you know that they're that we hear firsthand from the members what they want and then they will also sit on the branch then as well there would be a student representative on the branch so it's really like it's it's really exciting project because we haven't had it in Tipperary to date, a few of our members have done a program called um, "My Opinion, My Vote." It's never been run in Tipperary, but they have um, attended Field Field of Dreams in Cork, which is um, Down Syndrome Cork and um, Down Syndrome Waterford. So it's really like it's it's like a mega mix of My Opinion, My Vote, and then also an opportunity for them to sit on on a committee and to learn committee skills. And all that entails, you know, taking turns, um, minute taking, emailing, you know. So there's lots of um, trans- transversible skills that yeah. they will get from that programme as well. So, that's, so there's, a, there's a lot going on with adult services. So it's, it's really exciting. And obviously we have a latch-on programme um, that is funded by Tipperary ETB that is a two-day uh, college programme. We're based down in Colosta, Ella. Uh, on a Monday and a Wednesday and then we have another programme starting on Thursday. I think Orla already d- discussed it so I'll be running that programme with uh, Kayleigh, our student here, which is great. I'm delighted to have a student on board as well because they bring lots of energy to a project. Yeah. So we're going to focus on, again, functional life skills. Um, Susanna and Orla, the speech and language therapists here, were brilliant in terms of giving me input and what to focus on and, again, independence, functional life skills, even things like, you know, we, we, we hope to... Go on trips, like we hope to visit other centres or we hope to go to the NAC, the National Advisory Council up in Dublin with Down syndrome Ireland, but simple things like booking your own uh, train ticket, you know, that everything isn't organised for you, you know, so that our members here will hopefully have the independence to go to the train station or to go online and book your own ticket, that it's not me doing it or it's not Orla doing it or it's not their parents doing it, so I suppose the independence is key really, you know, and longevity of adult services, that it's not just a once-off, that that here in Metal 21 that we have adult um, services for all our members.
1: And that's our reporter Ali at uh, Metal 21 in Turnus, which is a marvellous uh, facility altogether. I was invited there by Michael Lowry uh, some time ago just to have a look around and it was just really, really impressive indeed. Um, we'll take a break. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email Tip Today at tipfm.com. And you're welcome back to uh, Tip Today. One of our listeners says, Good morning, Fran. I see that they're pulling up the roundabout again at the top of Bortlock Street in Cashel. It's a shambles. Do they know what they're doing there? Well, it seems like it's been going on for a very long time there. I think the Taj Mahal was probably built in uh, less time. I'm I'm not sure. I'm confused about what exactly is going on with that roundabout. But I'll tell you what we will do We'll go back to it on the programme tomorrow and we'll try and find out more because there's a lot of traffic holed up there, particularly around funeral times and all of that. So it is something we will... Uh, address tomorrow, we promise you where that is uh, concerned. Fran, we were at the coursing weekend at clonmel We went to a pub afterwards. Brilliant band playing. Um, your friend Gay Brazel was part of the band, and Brendan Ryder sounding better than ever and a great sax player. That would be Davy, because the band you're talking about is the Backyard Band, and I know they were playing in the Coachman on a Sunday night and uh, they're a terrific band, absolutely terrific altogether. And uh, this episode goes on to say, never heard them before, but they brought back some lovely uh, memories. Listen, if you get a chance to go and see the Backyard Band, you will not be disappointed for sure. Speaking of gigs, can I say hello to all the many, many listeners I met on Saturday night last in Brew Brew and again Gay was there with me uh, playing on the uh, the nights and uh, T.R. Dallas and uh, Tony Allen of Foster & Allen and young Larkin Kennedy 14 year old Larkin Kennedy almost stealing the show I might add, huge, huge response uh, to him there on the night and hello to his mum Fiona and the rest of the family as well because it was a marvellous night and thank you to everybody who uh, came up to say hello and talk about the programme and talk about Johnny and all of the shenanigans that we get up to here but it was lovely uh, to meet you all All right, much coming into us on 083-311-3311 and I will bring you that in at the next hour, but coming up in the next hour we'll be hearing from our agony at Thanks, Pat, and uh, welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. And right now it's time for...
0: For every problem, there's a solution. Dear Phil, on Tip Today with Phil Prendergast.
1: The lady with all the solutions with me in studio. Good morning to you, Phil. I
17: don't know what solutions I might have, Fran, but we're here anyway. We'll give it a go.
1: You're here in spirits anyway. Yeah. You knew the late John Bruton.
17: Ah, uh, yeah, and I, I would yeah. like to offer my condolences as well and to the families. Um, he was a very lovely man, very, very kind. Um, he was, you know, a real, real gentleman and very, very smart, very bright. Mm. And obviously, I mean, he wouldn't have achieved the high office he did had he not been so. But I'm, I'm very, very sorry to, to hear at, you know, a relatively young age. 76, yeah. Yeah, that he's, he's gone to God. But, yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, a, lo- a lot of people are uh, very sorry to hear it this morning. I see on my, my text here as well. All right, then, Phil, we will launch into our, our letters. The first letter. We were chatting about the it is kind of harrowing isn't it
17: What's what's awful is so I suppose Fran if if we read it out yeah. there's certainly going to be inputs I think from from the listenership I because would say so, yeah. there's it's it, there's quite a lot of conflicts in it but the changes in this girl uh, is is quite recent and it it's coinciding with the boyfriend who is older right. than her he,
1: he seems to be painted as the villain of the piece but anyway as you say we we'll, we'll read the letter dear Phil can you please help me before I crack up completely? I'm a single mother with an 18-year-old girl. She was a really good kid, no hassle with her at all until she went back to school last September. She has a boyfriend whom I can see is very controlling of her and on the phone to her every minute of the day and night. He's a year older and is working. He has no interest in college, which is fine, but my girl now no longer wants to do anything when she finishes school. I've asked her what she's going to do and she doesn't <coughs> even answer me. It all came to a head over the Christmas holidays holidays Holidays. She went out every single day with him. Got up at midday, spent hours doing herself up, and then off she went. She never spoke to me over Christmas or told me once what she when she would be coming home. One night she didn't come home at all. I texted her as she didn't bring her key and I was worried where she was. She replied saying she was staying with him at his house. I can't or won't interfere with what she wants to do, but it's called good manners to tell me whether or not she's coming home. I told her in the future, if she's not coming home, to make sure to tell me. She's very hostile, and I would go so far as to say that she hates me. I've tried to talk to her, but she just stares at me. She isn't doing any study, so God only knows what's going to happen with the leaving cert. She goes off every Friday evening after school and comes home to bed, and off again all day Saturday and Sunday with him. She won't uh, let me meet him, uh, she says, I will only be asking him questions. She's throwing away her life on this lad. And I see her other friends all studying and wanting to do well. And my girl only wants to be off with this lad. I think she's uh, uh, going to move out after leaving start to live with him. I can't stop her, but she's throwing her way, away her life. Her hostility is killing me. She hasn't spoken to me in months, only grunts at me if I'm lucky. Uh, No help to me in the house. I'm very down and depressed about the way that she's turned out. I gave her everything so far as to say I went without to give her the best. Uh, to make sure that she was happy. I know it sounds like I'm blaming this young dad. Uh, I'm not, but this change in her has only happened uh, since she met him. She's isolated herself from her friends as well. I have no one to turn to, and I'm worried sick if this all goes pear-shaped. She's going to take it out on me or worse. He has a car, and he drives very fast, so that is a worry as well. Please help me, it says here.
17: Well, like I said, this is a very convoluted and complex story, but... The reality of it is that all these changes happened with the, the relationship, which is mm. only about twenty weeks or twenty two weeks in yeah, very actually short time. when you So um, and the change is is kind of very unfair to her mother because I'm sure her life wasn't easy. Now, the fact that her daughter isn't studying for uh, an upcoming exam and and it's kind of, you know, when you put that kind of an investment into schooling people to that level and to that age, it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, to opt out of it at this point is a sort of a waste because I do think she'll be sorry if she doesn't get to pass her Leaving Cert and give herself some degree of a chance mm. to do either go to college, which isn't the answer for everybody, and I, I will be the first to admit that, or to make something of her life. Now, <clears throat> if I was the mum, I would definitely have, say listen, up to last September you were a dream, a dream, so proud, and so this and so that, and would you just not, would you would you consider to actually invest some of your time and energy into doing your upcoming exam that's mm. this coming up this year um and you know maybe try and get to there's no point in going off and screeching at her because that's going to bring bring her nowhere, but her daughter seems to have become very surly and very disrespectful of her mm. mother
1: no uh, communication and, yeah no communication.
17: very very poor. And I think that's very hard, Fran, when you rear a child mm. on your own. And we're assuming that she's on her own. She mm. may not have always been on her own, but she does say she's a single mother and her daughter is 18. Now, the fact that her daughter is 18, it technically means she can do whatever she wants yeah. because she's she's the age. Um, but what is awful is that there's a, a very new dimension to her life that wasn't there before and it seems to be going very very quickly. Mm. Um and it seems to have gotten serious very quickly, which also happens and you know there's there's nothing wrong with that per se. But um I would I would worry for her because she has decided her mother some sort of a villain and her mother is after doing her best for her because her opening line is she was a really good kid, no ca- hassle with her at all until she went back to school last September. So Whatever is changing, it would appear that the boyfriend is is the issue here because she's mm. she's gone and spending it all night with them, and she's gone, and I and I don't know how the man knows that. This fella drives very fast in the car. Na- Neighbours
1: are helpful at times, maybe, maybe, maybe.
17: But I do think she needs to try and open the communication again with her daughter to say, listen, you're going to have to have some sort of respect for the fact that we've gotten to this part of our lives and now you seem to be opting out of everything and you're not including me. And, you know, I mean, her daughter can't be so uncommunicative. That she just upsets her mom to that extent, and this relationship of fractures. And I mean, the relationship with her mother.
1: Mm. And it seems to be like that, though. Oh friend. yeah. I mean, it seems um, to but be, they,
17: it, and I mean, I I would really I think if if I don't have a daughter, but I I do think that I would want to meet a boyfriend mm. if that's to be the case, because uh, it's a social normal you know mm. sort of a thing to happen and I don't see why they should exclude unless he's a very bad influence on her and we just don't know but something has caused her personality to change from the nice girl that she was to being someone now that seems mm. to not care and definitely has no respect for her yeah. Her mum who probably struggled to uh, and
1: you know I think that's part of it too Phil the fact that the mum probably did struggle to bring up this this girl and she's I suppose making sure that maybe, you know, she doesn't want that to happen for, for her daughter, that she has that every, kind of struggle. Yeah, and,
17: and everybody wants the best for their children. Yeah, And there's, there's horses for courses. There is something for everyone. Not everyone will go the college route. Some people are terrific at art. Some people are not. Some people are great with their hands. Some people are not. There's every kind and, and all kinds. And having... Having your college degree or whatever—it's—it's—it's it's, it's par for the course nowadays. But it's not for everyone. There mm. are some people who are going to be terrific carpenters, or you know that they're just good and they're not exclusive in in what they do or how they choose. But I—I I just feel very sorry for the mum in this situation. But I do think she has she owes it to herself. To challenge the daughter and say, "Look, you—you know—I mean, you've changed totally in how you treat me, and I—I I really don't like being disrespected mm, yeah, like I that." Yeah, I mean, she
1: speaks about uh, complete hostility. Her and, and hostility she, is killing me. She said, "Yeah, but and she it goes strong, as far as so. to say
17: that she thinks she hates her." Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, mum now is—you can see that she's upset. She said she's tr- she won't leave me meet him, as she said. I'll only be asking him questions, and again, yeah. like that's a kind of a normal thing as well. Like you know, of
1: course, who is here, <laughs> yeah, where's he from,
17: or yeah. you know, but like, and he's quite young as well. But this this relationship has not gone on very long. And her relationship but her mother was there for eighteen years before this fella came oh, along. So and
1: sit her down. Sit
17: her down and say, Listen, we, we just I just want to have a chat with you and you know, you do have an exam coming up, you should try and mm. do your best for that. And I don't mind you going out on the weekend but I don't think you should be spending every hour and every minute, uh, you know, mm. with this one person, even though that could be mm. what she wants to do. But um, she shouldn't disrespect her mother. I'd be interested to know what people's I'd views look, are.
1: Yeah, I'd love to know what our listeners think uh, about that. 083 311 Our second letter then, dear Phil, I'm a mother of three kids and I'm afraid I have gotten us into a really bad habit. For the last few months, we have changed how we eat dinner. I know it's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things, but I'm afraid I am starting to divide the family. Before COVID, we always sat down for dinner every time as a family. Because of COVID, we were all at home together all day, so maybe we craved a little bit of space. So when it came to dinner time, the kids went up to their rooms and myself and my husband would eat in front of the telly. We never got out of that habit and I only realised it last week when I had a big dinner cooked one Sunday for my mother who was joining us for dinner. When I called for dinner, they all got their plates and scattered. (laughs) So it was just myself and my mother eating at the table. God, the poor pets. It made me realise we need to get back to a family dinner. I made the rule that every Sunday we have dinner together and with the hope that we would build it back up again. But they are all very reluctant at home. I feel like we've lost our connection to each other and I'm trying desperately to get it back now. Should we just accept that this is how we do it now or should I fight for the family dinner?
17: Look, Fran, in the general scheme of things, this is a lovely family and they sound fierce normal to me. Mm. Um, I think COVID was the, the... At the Rock, a lot of us perished on because we did we did things differently. We certainly did things differently. We departed from routines. Perhaps we got a bit more relaxed. But I wouldn't be I wouldn't be saying that this this is a a situation she should worry over much about. Mm. I think it would have been nice if they all had dinner when somebody was when their granny was there and and not be bolting off to the room. (laughs) And I think it would drive me crazy. If uh, I had to be picking up plates and bowls and spoons and forks rooms. and things yeah. from other rooms, and um, you know, it it kind of makes it, you know, a little bit, I suppose, mm. harder. But um, yes, that's,
1: it, do you not think though this is very common? I would I, say I, nowadays. I do think Phil. it's very common, yeah. and I,
17: I don't. I think she sh- she shouldn't worry too much about it. Um, I don't know what ages her kids are because she doesn't say. Yeah. But I do think that if you have you're going to a bit of energy and effort and cooking a roast and a Sunday roast and doing the Sunday dinner, um that it would be nice if they sat around and kind of said, Guys, come on, we we'll just sit down here at the table and we'll just you know, whatever. It's just a half an hour. Um it's just a it? half but it's well, no big deal. In the general scheme of things, this is not at all a problem. This is just how she's feeling about it at the moment. And because I suppose it was highlighted when her mother came to dinner and they all faked off to every corner of the house <laughs> and left her sitting jet. I can to I her imagine mother. the face
1: of the grandmother, you
17: know. <laughs> and she probably she probably said something you see there. I'm sure the, you know. Yeah. Yes, and I'm sure. they were like, yeah. "Would you not? Would, would they not? Whatever." But look, in, in in the general scheme of things, this is not something she should over worry about.
1: Right, but but maybe to make the Sunday at least the time. Well, I think would that would have been yeah. nice.
17: Um, it certainly would. You know, I think sometimes you have to put a lot of energy into dinners, and people might make a bit more of an effort at the weekend. I know how casual dinners can be now, and I know people's passion of eating, and you know it's it's it can be a bit fractious, but it's 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 a nothing. Yeah. You know, I think Mammy's upset because this has happened. But look, she could say to him, come on, once a week, right. will we just not sit and together?
1: Especially when uh, the grandmother is coming over. Exactly. As well. The final one then, dear Phil, my wife and I have been married for a few years and have been trying desperately for a few years to get planning permission to build our home on a site on my own family land. After years of trying, it seems we're getting nowhere, throwing money away on it, so we decided, sadly, to abandon the idea. We've been looking to buy around the area until my wife's parents offered their house to build onto. They've suggested that we could build a big extension onto their house, and they would live in a granny flat, essentially attached. My wife is very excited by the prospect and says we could have childminders on hand when we need them. That she would also uh, be close to her parents if anything happened and she thinks it resolves all of our problems with uh, trying to build. I, on the other hand, see nothing but problems. If we build on uh, to their existing house, how much say will we actually have and will it ever feel like our home? I get on okay with her parents, but I've never had to live with them, so I don't know if we would get on in a normal day-to-day situation. I'm really nervous of the prospect of it. My wife sees nothing but the good things, but all I see are bad. What should I do?
17: Well, look, I think this is complex. Um, You'd wonder why they weren't able to get planning permission for for their own site and the family land.
1: Well, it's you common. It's common for there to be great difficulties, is it not nowadays? Oh, Phil, and, yeah, and I understand
17: yeah. that, but they may not ha- find it as easy to build onto the, oh, an existing yes, sorry, house yes. either. Right, okay. So, I mean, I think they on both sides of the kind there's a problem here. Mm. So obviously if they've been trying for years and they've been throwing good money after bad trying to get planning permission and they're not getting the planning permission there has to be a reason so the site either isn't suitable or it's the the quality of the site or whatever mm. there's the the engineering report will will show up what the possibility of of refusal could be um I understand the husband's situation here mm. because um it's his wife's parents and they are very generously offering them. Mm. But again, that may be fraught also with complications or planning um, decisions. So again, are they going to, you know, see the feasibility of it? I would say they're going to need to go and talk with the council. Mm. And But wouldn't
1: it be a lot easier to get permission to build onto an existing home than to build a house from, from scratch?
17: It may not be Fran oh, because right. you know, um people's needs are changing and I think the idea that and and I heard Martin Brown on earlier and he he just he's such a good speaker Liam, um, Liam Brown. or Liam, Liam. sorry. Liam. And um he, uh, you know, he's talking about the modular homes and people. I think are adjusting that the, the big sitting room and the the, the good room and all, that's all gone. I yeah. mean, people now really do live in a much more relaxed style and they have multi use rooms and, you know. So what what you might want? Who always gives me the heebie jeebies is Dermot Bannon because if you say you have three hundred thousand. <laughs> He'll immediately tell you you're not going to get that house built for that. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. no. We'd have to do this and do this and do this. I'd so kill him.
1: Seven hundred.
17: I'd have killed him yeah. within two minutes of him coming into my house. With the Well, I joy. wouldn't have him in the house in the yeah, first place. Yeah, but anyway. So I think this is quite <laughs> complex. They'll have to look at the feasibility of building on, and in fact, what kind of a style of house is it if there's going mm. to be a plan. And so their first meeting should be with um, an engineer to have a look and uh, see what the prospects are and you know what nobody will live forever we all know that and um, so they're not going Mm -hmm. to be forever living but they are going to be looking after people as they get older and it would be nice to be right mm. by them, but I think this is the, the husband needs to be satisfied that he's not going to do have you, do to you do... you think the
1: parents might be quaking in their boots when when the the wife says, uh, we could have child minders on hand? That's a bit of a well, sort
17: of I, I don't even know if there's children here, but I, I think that's a bit a bit bold, being honest, because, you know um, being minding the offspring of your children, it, it, it wouldn't be my idea of heaven now
1: well, not all the time or not on a regular basis, <laughs> whatever listeners are on to say. Building on to the in-laws. Fran and Phil, tell him to run a mile. <laughs> I live next door to my in-laws. Worst thing ever, is one of our listeners.
16: Oh, yeah, God well, on. you
17: see, I think it, there's complexities <laughs> in it. And I understand about the shortage of houses. And in the general scheme of things, there's a lot of people who would give anything to have this kind of a response. But it's like anything when you're you're going to do something, it may not be a simple right of access, parking mm. spaces. How close is it to the road? Is it is the site suitable? Um, there's all of that to be taken into it, but yeah, you'd see a very successful um, extensions on houses that mm. become the main house, if you like, and they as they call it, the granny flat is tacked on at the side and I don't know what I want to be in a granny flat after being in my house.
1: No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't
17: be Wouldn't be I happy wouldn't with that. No, 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 so no. yeah, this is a complex one, isn't it? Isn't
1: it just indeed? Okay, so a lot more kind of
17: information gathering and Well, they need, to go, the, well, they need to go definitely and go with the council engineer and have a chat with him and also see why, investigate why were they always refused planning on their own land and is it a um, Access or egress uh, is the problem there is it subsidence in the land is there some issue there that is you know is going to prevent um, it being a good site All right. and uh, certainly they seem to have spent a lot of money so they need to go carefully but yeah research it for certain
1: Alright Phil great to see you and thanks very much indeed if you have a problem that you'd like Phil to have a look at it's tip today at tipfm.com and if you want to put uh, dear Phil in the subject line there thanks Phil and look after yourself we'll take a break
5: Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In
0: association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie 1800
1: 938 007, that's our free phone number if you want to chat to Doc.
0: The Conspiracy Files on Tip Today.
1: And Ali is here with uh, Conspiracy Files under her arm. We're getting into existential stuff, Ali, uh, this week. That's that's for sure, aren't we?
13: Yeah, we're going deep this week. We're talking life after death this week. Uh, And this is because I have reread a book, uh, It's Life After Life. It's an old book. It's from the 1970s, I believe, mid-70s. Dr. Raymond Moody. Have you read
1: it? I haven't read it, no, but I've heard about it. I'll pass it it on to you. It's
13: fantastic. And this is kind of what led to this. So, Life After That. Of course, it's the existential question, what happens after we die? It's a topic that's been discussed and debated since the dawn of man. Now, Obviously, our religious beliefs play a big role in shaping those beliefs. But in an age of science, there are more studies now that are looking to put these thoughts and theories to the test and see if we can find scientific proof that there is life after death. And there's been some very interesting studies and we'll go into them after Mm. a while. But just to talk about the cultural beliefs that exist about what can happen after we die. The ancient Egyptians, they believe that we go to a field of reeds. Now here you're granted eternal paradise and your soul will lead you there. You go to the Hall of Truth where your heart will be weighed by the scales of justice. And if your heart is light, you go to heaven. If your heart is heavy, you are denied. And it's weighed against a feather. So if it's lighter than the feather, you go to heaven. If you're denied, you go to a holding area. Of course, in Catholicism, as we all remember, this is purgatory. So all religions have the same basic ideas. It's a journey to the afterlife, a reflection on your life and your behaviour during your life, and then a ruling, essentially, on whether you're deemed worthy enough to go to paradise. But not all religions have that. Buddhism, of course, souls are reincarnated over and over. Each good life will lead to an upgrade in the next one. That's until you live a pure life, free from detachment and ignorance, and then you go to nirvana. Atheists, of course, believe in the eternal nothing which is a very scary prospect, Mm. I think, for a lot of people. Now, we've always believed that it's impossible to truly prove the existence of an afterlife because to do so, I suppose, would really mean that you'd have to bring somebody back from the dead. But we've never done that. Or have we? We have, Fran. And the stories that we hear are incredible. Like Mm. one of them, the main one, and this is the story that inspired Raymond Moody. In 1943 a young army recruit by the name of George G. Ritchie. He was brought to hospital with pneumonia. While he was there, he was left in a room all by himself because his case at that time was not deemed that serious. But it was very serious and unknown to medical staff was exceptionally serious. George died just two hours after coming into hospital. He was only 20 years old at the time. Now, the medical staff discovered George had passed away They ordered a medical attendant then to prepare George's body for the morgue. He brought him down, said he had an odd feeling about George. He checked his vital signs. Nothing was there, but he just couldn't shake the feeling that there was something off about George. So he gave him a shot of adrenaline to the heart. George then said he sat straight up, got to his feet. He felt fine, though was drowsy. He was anxious to return to his military training, so he left the hospital. He got to a town nearby and tried to ask people for directions, but everyone ignored him. He started to get a bit freaked out by this because he said it felt like he was invisible. Now, he also said that he could hear a constant beeping, which kept getting louder until it was a deafening roar. But after a while, George had some military or medical training as well. And he realised then that what he was hearing was actually medical equipment. So, George then realised he'd never left the hospital. He woke up, found himself in the hospital four days after he'd been declared dead. He made a full recovery, but Good couldn't God. forget this experience wow. that he had. So, in 1965, after George had served, he went into the field of psychiatry. And he told this story to one of his postgrad psychiatry students, a man called Raymond Moody. Now, Moody was so fascinated by the story that he dedicated his entire life to finding out more about near-death experiences. And Moody was the man who coined that term near-death experiences in the 70s. Now, there had already been a lot of chatter among medical staff, doctors and nurses about how some patients would wake up from surgery or from near-misses, really, with these reports of very strange experiences about what happened and they thought they were dying or had died. Now Moody decided to focus on those stories, document them and try to discover the cause of them and if there were any common threads. Now he studied these reports across all age of patients, all religions, all backgrounds, all health issues and he found that a lot of elements of their stories were very similar. Here's Raymond Moody speaking about it.
5: I don't mind saying that after talking with over a thousand people who have had these experiences, and having experienced many times some of the really baffling and unusual features of these experiences, it has given me great confidence that there is a life after death. As a matter of fact, I must confess to you in all honesty, I have absolutely no doubt on the basis of what my patients have told me that they did get a glimpse of the
13: beyond. So a lot of them had a common thread. It was a bright light or a tunnel that you would move toward it at speed. You felt incredible peace. Uh, You would see loved ones who had already passed on who would greet you there. For a lot of people, you went to a garden. For a lot of people, you went somewhere that was significant during your life. For a lot of them, it would give you... Um, it kind of differs a little bit. A little bit. Some would see their life play out before them like a movie, all the main points of their life. For other people, which I always found interesting, you felt every feeling that you ever made anyone feel in your life. So if you made someone feel hurt, or you made someone feel angry, or you made someone feel love, you all you felt. The you would experience you gave. that. Yeah. Wow. Which is hugely interesting, isn't it?
1: and that's common that
13: that can it? be very common wow. yeah okay so raymond moody then spent his entire life then collecting all of this data from people who technically had died and he was very careful about that because he went through all their medical records make sure that these were people who according to the medical terminology were dead when they were having these experiences. He also looked into, a lot of people might say, of course, it's something that happens neurologically to the brain when it's shutting down. He's looked into that as well, and we'll come back to that kind of towards the end. But what does it feel like to die and then come back? Well, these stories are easy to find. There are absolutely thousands of them. If you want to go online or on YouTube, yeah. there are so many of them. Here's one. Dr. Mary Neal, she drowned while kayaking in Chile. Officially, she was dead for 30 minutes, but she survived. Here's what she described. And then I was
16: released to the heavens. My spirit rose up and out of the river and I was immediately greeted by a group of people or spirits who had known me and loved me as long as
1: I have existed. Are they all positive stories?
13: No. They're not. There's a few negative ones. And this is our next one. Howard Storm uh, wasn't a happy man, very quick to anger. A difficult man, didn't get on with people. But he brought his wife to Paris for their anniversary. But while he was there, he suffered a perforated intestine, was rushed to hospital. There was a mistake in the hospital and he was left in a room and not treated. And now as he reports, he woke up and he saw his wife crying and he got cross at her. Because he thought, this isn't happening to you. I'm the one in pain. I'm sick. What are you crying for? So poor Al Howard's wife, he asked her then to open the window. She didn't respond. So he got up himself to open the window, but he couldn't open the window himself so he decided to go out into the hallway to call a doctor he left the room and then had a very strong feeling when he left the room that he would never see that room or his wife again he said he just knew it was completely inherent in himself he would never see it again the hallway was dark with just a thin light at the very end. And then he saw beings in cloaks coming towards him and he became really frightened Good and God. he said the atmosphere got very heavy. He said he knew immediately that they were there to take him to hell. Ouch. Here's just a little bit.
3: Their purpose was entirely to um, humiliate me, not to destroy me, but to humiliate me and the biting and scratching and, uh, you know, violating me in um, all wow. kinds of ways. And, and a lot of them were biting me and I... Not been bit a lot in my life, but they yeah. seemed to have exceptionally sharp, jagged teeth as they were biting and gnawing on me. No, they, were, they wanted to torment me. And so what they, what they were doing was really simple. They were trying to inflict pain. Mm-hmm. And it was clear to me that these people had no, um, what we would think of as compassion, no love, no, you know, no human sensation of their own. So what they were doing was they were feeding off my pain, if that makes any sense, that that gave them... Um, pleasure it gave them some kind of pleasure to um, get as much pain out of me as possible and so they were trying to prolong that as much as possible and this just went on and on and on and on and on
13: how, it's a, it's how a,
3: frightening is
13: that terrifying and it's yeah. a very long account that he gave and when he got to hell he was essentially ripped limb from limb by these beings and describes the pain of it he said he never obviously experienced anything like it he said it terrified him.
1: I'll bet he changed his ways.
13: Absolutely he did. He's now a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> but when he awoke, actually it went down oh, from I'm that because when laughing. he woke up he was being prepared for surgery. That repaired the perforation. In the following days then he reported he was visited by a doctor. Uh, upon whose arrival the room would lighten and upon his exit it would darken again he asked a nurse afterwards this nurse was uh, stationed outside of his room she said there was no doctor like that that was going in he also recounts a voice that told him to ignore the advice of doctors and buy return tickets to the US a week after this procedure which he did upon his arrival in Cincinnati he was admitted to hospital again in critical condition with double pneumonia collapsed lung extreme extreme peritonitis Uh, I know I said that wrong peritonitis and non-A, non-B hepatitis. His recovery then from that took five weeks and he reported a period of seven months of extreme weakness. He would have died if he hadn't gone to the US hospital at that time. So he said that the experience never faded as memories and dreams often do. He became involved with a church, studied for a Master of Divinity from the US Theological Seminary, entered the seminary, was ordained, served as a pastor in Ohio, I was also a former pastor of the United Church of Christ in Ohio so that's one man whose life was completely turned around by that I wouldn't through wonder. the terrifying experience but these are all people's own stories there's no way of knowing if this is some kind of neurological effect or maybe if it's drug induced so there have been some studies done on that there was one brainwave study that was done on Patients who were dying, and what they found was that there was this huge spark of activity in the brain just at the moment of death. Um, where, I mean, if you look at the brain waves of a normal brain from day to day, it would heighten at certain periods, but everything in the brain that they could measure increased hugely at the moment of death. So there are theories as to why that would happen. Maybe it's a panicked response from the brain because it knows everything is shutting down. Maybe it's the brain's way of relaxing you so you're not frightened when you're dying. That is still kind of an argument that a lot of scientists are having. Mm. But one very interesting study I found, now it's from almost, what, uh, 120 years ago. It's a 1901 study. It was carried out in the US by a doctor, Duncan McDougall, and he wanted to find out if the soul at a tangible weight, and if it did, he wanted to capture it. So what he did was he followed a group of terminally ill patients. Their beds were set on scales and were documented constantly. What he found, at the moment of death, the body lost 21 grams immediately upon death. Now, he tried this experiment on people of both sexes, various ages, sizes, medical backgrounds, all of them lost exactly 21 grams the moment they died. Incredible. It also allowed for the loss of weight or fluid during death. So it's a very, very interesting study. Of course, with every study like this, there's also criticism mm. of it. Experts say they're unable to replicate it to repeat the results, so that would cast maybe some doubt upon it. They also say that the original test group was too small to make a definitive conclusion. That original test group was about 32 but in all of those 32, they lost exactly 21 grams when they died. But it shows that the hunger in the science community to prove or disprove life after that, death has always been there. And I think will continue to always be there until if we ever find the answer. But I, that one I love. I'd love for them to try and replicate that one again.
1: It's interesting, but how can the soul have a weight if it's an ethereal thing? Yes, or a
13: that's the question. Yeah. But obviously th- there there must be some weight on the body when it lifts. And there would be some people who'd report that, wouldn't they? Yeah, but there's there's also
1: theories that the notion of a soul is in fact outside of ourselves in some way. That's not necessarily contained within the the physical But Anyway, we're getting into the real... Yeah, we're getting very deep. You've got something else for us to finish with though, haven't you? Yeah, it's
13: Raymond Moody again because he's a fascinating man and if you can at all get your hands on the book It's Life After Life. I think he wrote another one after that but Life After Life is his main one. An absolutely incredible book and he is the man who started this obsession with near-death experiences. And he was asked if his work had frightened him at all and he spoke even just recently about what his work
16: has taught him the most important thing we can do while we're alive is to learn how to love and I've also learned that there's nothing to fear in death really is a transition into some other world and I've also learned that these experiences seem the same all over the world wherever I've traveled I hear the same things from people. I've also learned that at the point of death, we get to engage in a fascinating holographic panoramic review during which we review all the things we've ever done while we're alive from the point of view of those with whom we've interacted. People say that with the review of their life, they often review their lives in the company of a being of light and of complete love and compassion, um, who sees everything you've ever done in this panorama of your life and yet still loves you. People I know who've returned from death say that it was the most wonderful experiences of their life. And I would say to people, There's nothing to fear in death, that the fearful things are here in this life.
13: Isn't that the truth?
1: Isn't that the truth? Have you made up your mind about this, Ali?
13: I don't know. Like, it depends. Like, I do love the idea, and I would maybe, I think... Um, I'd be on the side of the, but I do think there there's evidence there of past lives, so I'm kind of leaning more towards that. Mm. But I do find it really reassuring to have so well, many stories. I know from stories. our
1: conversations over the years that idea of the eternal nothing is particularly terrifying.
13: <laughs> yeah, even though you don't know, <laughs>
1: you, you, you won't be conscious of. it yeah, needless to but say, it's terrifying, but isn't it? John? but yeah. there is an end.
13: Yeah, you know, a blackness. It.
1: All right, Ellie. Real pleasure. Thanks,
13: Thanks very friend. much
1: as always. If it matters to you,
5: it matters to us. Call Tip Today on
1: 1-800-938-007. Oh, delighted to be joined in the studio by Susan O'Donoghue, relationship mentor and co creational psychotherapist as well. Good morning to you, Susan. How are you? Good morning, you? friend. We're, we're really into deep stuff this morning. How how do you feel about that life after death stuff? Does that intrigue you?
18: It does, of course. Um I think I would, like no more than yourself, Rally, I would hate to think that there's nothing after yeah, this. Yeah. And I just said there about a wonder what it's like for us being born. You know, I wonder, is it the same kind of experience? Because when we're born, lots of us don't, I don't remember, do you? I don't no. know anyone who does. No. So it must be frightening.
1: Just the noise, the... The, Everything, the the light, light,
18: the noise, the the change, you're in this lovely warm, yeah, yeah. and the next thing you know, you're either pulled out (laughs) or you're shot out, (laughs) whatever way it goes. But it must be, I would imagine it must be frightening. It's certainly um, unfamiliar, I would say. To say the
1: least. Yeah, and and you know if there is an afterlife, that transition again. I mean, it's yeah, all transition rebirth. with us, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
18: yeah. And you know that theory about not, nothing ever really goes away; it just changes into another form. Something else. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fascinating stuff. It is fascinating.
1: Stuff. You're going to speak to us today about surviving exam time, and I suppose the mocks. Oh no. The mocks are on now. Yeah. I think
18: they're all in the middle of it. Some are further ahead, some are behind. Yeah. But, uh I, I just think um, we talk about this every year, it comes up, right, yearly, yeah. we're always talking about it. And to me, it kind of amazes me because if you ask students, because they're the ones who are doing it, how it impacts them. There's been studies do- done, like I think Study Click did one there a while ago, back in a couple of years ago, and they showed that nearly 75% of students say it's extremely stressful for them over the two year period of the Leaving Cert.
1: And is that necessarily bad, Susan? Because stress is very much part of our lives.
18: I I think stress is... There's nothing wrong with stress, right? Stress is not the enemy. But I think when it's prolonged and it's intense, it depends on how long it goes on for, doesn't it? The duration of Mm. it and how intense it is during that duration. Like, stress actually gives us energy to Mm. go forward. But then there's that, like... How is it that all our, our teenagers are, like nearly 75% of them are talking about anxiety and stress and like beyond the norm mm. nearly, do you know what I mean? And I just think that maybe we, I know mean, we say it every year and I'm just blue from even thinking about it, but we do need to look at how we structure the leave insert. Mm. You know, you're not an exam result, not everybody's academic. And I know that you talked about this before, yeah. you know, like, but it is the truth. We all have different, we're all here for a different reason, a different purpose. We all have our own unique talents. How is it that? we just see the academic ones as special. Do you know what I mean? Like, like not everybody's going to go to college. Not everybody. And at the moment, they all seem to be. But I think that that'll decline mm. as well. Yeah,
1: are, are we not beginning to have another sort of view on this? Because now we've realised we don't have enough apprentices. We don't yes. have enough plumbers and carpenters and yes. builders and all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And we have people coming out of college often with degrees that are useless to them.
18: This is it. And there's a degree for everything.
1: Yeah. You know yeah. what
18: I mean? They're after splitting them all off now and like, even just to know what direction to go in. You have to go and sit with somebody who has a knowledge of all the different courses, because there is so many of them. And then, like you say, Fran, it's when I come out at the end of it.
4: Yeah. Like,
18: what's it going to be like for me then? What are my opportunities when I come out? And you know, I think it's amazing to find something you love to do. But like, I think this kind of peer pressure between students and families, maybe parents Mm. and the whole lot, about going to college. College is not the be all and end all you know what I mean there's more things and you can always go back like, that's, I, I know my day, there was no opportunity in my family to go to college. We just didn't sure, have it. Yeah. I think my brother went to ANCO, you know what mm. I mean? That was as far as we got. But unless, like, you had pool or connections or your parents were that way, you know what I mean? That they had gone to college. That was the only way you mm. would have got to college mm. when you were a minor Yeah, age. it
1: wasn't even a question. I no, mean, it wasn't even, no, you just d- got, even got on with, with it. Most of us. Yeah, know. <laughs>
18: um, you know, then you went off and you, you experienced a bit of life. Mm. Maybe you went to ANCO, maybe you became a hairdresser, maybe you worked mm. in the bank. But you kind of had that life experience and then you went back. To college which mm. I think makes way more sense
1: How So I mean the stress is there sadly this system is still with us Susan That's the
18: issue So how do we
1: work around it Alright
18: I mean we have to go with what we have right yeah. unfortunately we have no choice so I think it's the first thing is don't make stress the enemy like you said mm. because stress is a good thing yeah and I think supporting their emotional well-being around failure because the minute we hear it, failure you know and as a parent how do I feel around failure because remember practice what you preach Mm, yeah yeah. so like I can tell my kids oh don't worry about it just do your best and you're not an exam result and you can say that a million times right but what I found myself when I was doing my own exams a couple of years ago I got quite upset if I didn't get what I wanted to get
1: yeah I did the same and
18: that's after years of doing this work on myself like and I had no issue telling my kids you're not an exam result but was I really setting the example
1: it's a very good point that's
18: the key you know what I mean because they they see they know us so well don't they they watch mm. us for every move. They know us inside and out, like, mm. well, not 100%, but even they, know they know us.
1: Instinctively, don't they know us. Instinctively, they yeah. know
18: us. Like, <clears throat> yeah. you know, I often think, like, my kids lived inside in me. How could they yeah. not know me? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But they really do, and they watch us for cues, you know? Uh, and even when they're getting older and when they're 17, 18, 19, whatever, they still watch us for cues, yeah? And um, I suppose for me, it's always about communication and relationship. It's always about keeping that relationship as open as you can, setting your own boundaries within it as a parent, you Mm. know what I mean? Because I think that the whole stress around exams doesn't just impact the student, it impacts the whole family, you know what I mean? And how am I now as a parent going to take care of myself in this? Because it's quite stressful, you know, Um, and what do I need to do for myself? Because if I go in there and I'm stressed, but I'm pretending I'm not stressed, they know Mm. They know. So how
1: do you get around that? Well,
18: then what you do is you practice what you preach, right? So now I'm going to take care of myself in that. What do I need to do? Do I need to step out for a few minutes? Do I need to take a deep breath? Do I need to go for a walk? Do I need to go and clear my head somewhere else? What do I need to sit down, read a book, watch my favorite movie? Whatever does it for you, walk the dog, you know, whatever it is. Do I need to do that just to get a bit of space for myself? Because now what I'm doing is I'm showing an example of what you do when you're that stressed. You're
1: looking after yourself. But you're showing
18: your kids the example too. To do so. That's how they learn. So I think like it's more about doing and not saying. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the worst thing is comparison compare them oh, to Lord. oh when I was your age or oh well, Jimmy down the road did it or your mm. sister got through that
1: oh yes oh particularly yeah. when the sibling yeah yes, you know yeah.
18: so I think it's mm, to watch out for those cues because we slip into it so easily you know mm. and I think it's to take care of yourself and that of course we all know that sleep is huge at these times and making sure that they get the food they need and proper mm. food and not just all sugar rushes and and then I suppose What I try and do is I'll go up and I'll say, do you want a cup of tea every, you know, an hour Mm, and a half? So, mm. you know, that they're not in the room because we don't know what they're doing in the room anyway, Mm. to be honest, do we? I
1: suppose (laughs) there is that. Yeah. But like
18: just if they are studying to make sure that they're getting that break time, you know, and they come out and change the topic. Don't talk about exams. Yeah. yeah, because they're in school 24-7. They're talking about him. Their friends are talking about him. Everywhere they go, they're talking about him. So try and change the topic. Go out for a walk with the dog. Dog gets legs walked off. Him. <laughs> but that kind of a thing or go somewhere, go out for a coffee, go out for just do go somewhere different. Yeah. You know, just to take the mind off of the exams, because when you're under that much pressure, st- like say the survival mode takes over and now nothing's gone in. Because now I I'm suppose, stressed. Yeah. You know.
1: An awful lot of the stress comes from like the way I would do something, which is i leave everything until the very last minute in terms of study or, or do whatever. You? Yeah. I, I tend to... Uh, procrastination, is it? I'd be is the opposite. Would you? You'd be well planned. Oh,
18: I'd wasn't. have to have it in two weeks before.
1: Would you? You yeah, see, that's, that's yeah. terrific. You know, I keep putting it off and putting it... And then I try and cram in a whole, And that is hugely yeah.
18: full, full of anxiety. Yeah. And do you know, at this stage now, if they don't have the work done, just take yeah. a deep breath, do what you can from now. I think they've five weeks now until Easter. Yes. And then I think they've eight weeks then until the actual you know, till the start of it. But look, they're not an exam result at the end of the day. Mm. You know what I'm saying? If they don't get in, talk to them around if you if you don't get what you want. Yes. Is there other options? Let's have a look at them and see what they are.
1: But is it not a very narrow line between encouraging them to do the best that they possibly can do? And then overdoing that, if you know what I mean, Susan, like it's a narrow line there. Look,
18: I suppose it's and again, I need to check in on myself. How am I around it?
1: Yes. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, because that's
18: the example I'm now given. Do you know what I'm saying? So whether I think I whether I think that I am given that or not, if I'm feeling that way, they know it. So I suppose it's very important now for me to check in. How was it for me growing up around failure? What does failure mean to me as a parent? Am I worried about what the neighbours are going to think? Am I worried about what extended family is going to think if I say, no, he failed it? How would that be for me now? Or mm-hmm. she failed it? Do you know what I mean? How is that going to sit for me? You know, as a pair, like if we just sat down and were honest about it and thought about it, you know, because everybody's going to be saying, and one thing I, I try never to do is mention a figure when it comes to res- uh, like how many pints or all that I never I say they got what they wanted
4: right okay yeah,
18: yeah. I think that whether they got 6,000 pints or 2 pints it doesn't matter the thing about it is is p- the pressure that that puts on people how many pints it's ridiculous you're not a point yeah
1: yeah and yeah. I mean I would have known people damaged by the yeah. bloody thing. I mean, yeah. really, really damaged. Yeah.
18: And by studies it, you know? show that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean, Fran? Studies show that it's hugely stressful for them. It's not just even that it's, you know, like say stress is going to push you to do your best. Like they get totally carried away with this. There's, It's like, I remember coming back years ago and I did my driver's licence here. I had one in America and I did one here. And people were giving me cards and they were saying, oh my God, congratulations. I couldn't get over the emphasis that was put on the driver's test. I'm glad I didn't know it before I went for it (laughs) because I might have panicked. Do you know know, what I mean? But like, it's just please, please, please mind yourself as parents in this because it is so stressful. They come in there after listening to stuff all day. We don't know what they're after hearing. We don't know what their friends are after saying. Like the slightest thing when you're that stressed can tip you over the edge. So if they do come in a bad form, yes, you have your boundaries. And, you know, it's okay if you have a little wobble. Yeah. But then there's other boundaries there that you're not, you know, you don't go over the top either. You know what I mean? And come from the eye place as a parent. You know what I mean? Mm. Speak about yourself. Don't speak about, uh, oh, I know how you feel. Because you don't know how they feel. Yeah. You know, I know how I feel around this as your parent. And I want the very best for you. And if there's anything I can do for you, please let me know. And say it once.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, that's <laughs> course 40 and not, not 40 times. Yeah, yeah because we
18: have a habit of doing that. And that's our own yeah. anxiety. Yeah, yeah
1: As usual, though, you really have me thinking here because... Like I mean, I would hope, and I would certainly would be the case. I would never put pressure on the kids where exams are concerned. But you're right. Inside, I mean, my own goals would always be too high, and I'd always yeah. be pushing myself. But I, I, but I, I saying I'd never push that on them. But you're saying they'd be aware.
18: Of course they are. She's of, they're watching us our whole lives. Do you yeah, know what I mean? I like if we're workaholics, if we're like kids, like how would they not know that? Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? If they see our dead. and her. even though
1: you're telling them, look you know whatever that, you're still saying that's not
18: it's not good like you're saying do as I say not as I do yeah, yeah? Well. so like that's the key to it for me always is going back in and thinking about how is that for me now what's coming up for me like I'm saying to them you're not an exam result I'm saying to them there's another way but if I was in their shoes how would I feel would I be freaking out yeah. but do I think do I do, do I um say, I see my worth based on if I fail or if I succeed yeah. Do, you, do you know what I'm saying I like if we're honest with ourselves I know. you know and then we really need to work on ourselves there you know what I mean because we're not exam results and we all bring something unique to the world and do you know what like yes there is a need for our children to put in the effort yeah there, mm. I'm not saying that they get away scot-free and you just you know yeah. whatever through the whole school there is but there's, there's a limit yeah there's you do your best you're not inco- it's not about outdoing the person next to you it's about doing your best and the comparison thing is horrendous for kids. It's horrendous for anyone. Oh, sure, no, yeah. you? know, So it's not about what the person next to you is doing. And we do that ourselves, don't we? We look at the person, if we're in a class situation, Always. we look at the person we go, oh, they're getting it now and I'm not. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's hard then to reel it back in. But if we practice it on ourselves, our kids will watch us and they'll know how to do it.
1: Even if we do some other version of the Leaving Search, just finally, Susan, it, you know, or uh, you know, structure it in a different way, Would you still not have the human element that wants to overachieve in some way? Will that not always be the case? Or is there something about the Levy's Heart that makes it particularly difficult?
18: Well, do you remember I was saying to you the greatest addiction in the world is the addiction to what other people think, yeah?
1: Yeah.
18: So why do I want to overachieve? Is it for myself or is it for other people? It's it's
1: for other people, of course, yeah.
18: So if we see that as an addiction to what other people think of us, Right. Then we have an understanding of why we're doing things, why we're doing it, why it's so important for us to be seen as the best. Yeah. Because then we get attention. We get belonging. Yes. You get praise. Yeah. You get a whole lot of stuff comes with that. But what I'd say to you is if we can understand that and if we can get that into our minds, that that's why we're doing it, then why would we do it? Do you know what I'm saying? We might do it for a while as a protector because now it is a protector. It's an unconscious thing we're doing. So if we bring that to consciousness and we work on it, it'll soften. Do you know? But if we don't understand it and we don't look it'll at it, it'll
1: continue on. Of course it will. Right, and it'll spread then to people around us. Of course,
18: of course it will. Well. We, br- we bring ourselves, don't we? Yeah. Isn't
1: that fascinating? It's a fascinating work you do. You oh, know, thank that, you. <laughs> you know, it really, really. Is. I love it, it. If people want to speak to you, Susan, how, sure. how can they do it's
18: that? It's or it's info at emotionalwellbeing.ie. Thanks, mm-hmm. friend.
1: Great to see you, Susan. Thanks very much indeed. That's it from me. Uh, Doc produced today. Ali looked after our content. Stephen's on the way with the time tunnel, and I'll. Talk